Everyone, this is going to be maybe the best four hours of our whole trip. Four hours? with Rob and Zach. This is a podcast about cinematic oddies where we discuss any media that is too bizarre, normal, or off-kilter for contemporary audiences. Occasionally, these projects gel. Most times they crash hard into the realm of obscurity. Join us as we delve into the cult classic swamp. I'm Zach. And I killed you, Mr. Anderson. I watched you die. With a certain satisfaction, I might add. Then something happened, something that I knew was impossible, but it happened anyway. You destroyed me, Mr. Anderson. After that, I understood the rules. I knew what I was supposed to do, but I didn't. I couldn't. I was compelled to stay, compelled to disobey. And now, here I stand because of you, Mr. Anderson. Because of you, I'm no longer an agent of this system. Because of you, I've changed. I'm unplugged. A new man, so to speak. Like you, apparently, three. And Zach's response is... You're supposed Whoa. to say congratulations. No, you say congratulations. That's, the, that's Neo's line. He says congratulations to Agent Smith. And they have a fight for 17,000 minutes. <laughs> so... I know Zach and I have been talking for months that I was going to do the architect or part of the architect speech. One, I think there's too many Neo lines of dialogue in there to really get that going. And two, I think Agent Smith's monologue that I just read is way more indicative of the theme of choice in this movie. I think the architect, while talking about choice, is very, very particular about Neo's choice. I think that uh, Agent Smith, or who's just Smith now, he's an agent, as he said, he's unplugged. He is very much more talking about the concept of choice as a whole, which I'm sure we will get into in this episode. Zach, we're here to discuss The Matrix Reloaded. What a big switch in tone. Last week, I know we started with, are we even equipped to talk about one of the most influential movies of all time? I think this week we can say Zach and I are very well equipped to discuss one of the most hated sequels in all of human history. Is that fair to say? Oh, God, this movie is so fascinating to kind of just think about, never mind talk about. It's, oh, God, this is, oh, God, I can't, we live in a culture now where, like, there's, like, maybe not as much now, but maybe a few years ago, where hype culture was a thing where there always was the idea of, like, something's percolating to, like, the next level. Oh, yeah. Um, probably the last major thing being Avengers Endgame. Oh, but, like, big time. I've, I've, that, that's probably the, the most recent modern example. Absolutely. And yet, like, I, as somebody who was a product of the hype of this film, I think we mentioned it last week, like, I didn't see The Matrix until, like, fall 2002. And, like, I was 10 years old at the time, and I remember, like, just being – everybody, like, in elementary school was excited to go see The <laughs> Matrix Reloaded. Yep. Um, I remember seeing – like I said, I, I, I know this is kind of bleeding into some of the context from last week. I remember seeing this in theaters in May of 2003. 
Um, my main, my only memory from the theater going experience, and I think Rob will probably guess, during the uh, rave slash sex scene between Trinity and Neo, my mother like had a pearl clutching moment because she had two <laughs> children in the theater for this, and you get a very graphic sex scene between uh, two actors. And um, I, I, oh God, Rob, I couldn't help. But think of this line of dialogue from one of my favorite films of all time, okay. Men, Women, and Children. Uh, of course. As I was watching the Neo Trinity sex scene. Are you about to say that this was the this is the easiest to find a hole? Is that what you're gonna have to do right now, Zach? <laughs> Something along those lines? Because all we see is Trinity is Neo's ports while they're fucking in this movie. <laughs> and it's yeah, great. they got ports, bro. <laughs> the whole time as they're having like their gratuitous sex scene, I'm just like Oh man, all the holes are easy to find <laughs> this time around. Um, that was my that's my main memory from seeing this in theaters. Afterward, I guess I remember being entertained by this movie. I don't remember disliking it all as a ten year old. I remember actually more vividly when the DVD came out because there was a big like DVD like marketing blitz because it came out roughly a month before Revolutions did yes. on DVD. Yes. And I remember getting – because, again, somebody – I think I mentioned it in prior episodes. My nephew and I had this weird, like, war of attrition upon, like, amongst, like, buying, like, more physical media between mm. the two of us. That's the reason why I just got a, a Blu-ray and DVD collection that's just <laughs> ginormous now. Um, but I remember when this came out on DVD, like, him, his – my brother – um, and his mother were at – like we were all at Walmart together. And they had like – and Walmart had the beautiful little like cardboard – oh god, what would you call it? I don't want to say kiosk, but just kind of like thing they put in the middle of the aisle like as oh, soon as you walk like in. A, like a standee or something but for yeah, shelves. Yeah, yeah. Sure. Um, and, and it was like a display. And I remember like anytime we went – my parents went somewhere with my nephew. If I got something, he had to get something of equal equal value or greater. And I remember, like, going there, and, like, he obviously went, like, running toward it and picked up a copy. And, like, I kind of looked around. It's like, well, is somebody going to, like, ask me? Like, as a 11-year-old, <laughs> I'm like, is somebody going to ask me if I want a copy of The Matrix Reloaded? <laughs> and no. So basically, all he, like, they bought him a copy of the movie as I sat there, and I'm just like, oh. And I remember just being so jealous out of my mind. Because I'm like, well, I like I I want a copy of the Matrix Reloaded, sure. and then this and this is the best part. It's like I, it was either a couple of days or a week later. My father took me to that same Walmart to get a copy of it. Sent me in as an 11 year old with a twenty dollar bill to buy it. Walked all the way to the electronics counter, and I got like quasi carded. Ooh, interesting. Okay. And I remember going back to the parking lot with my like to my father. I'm like, they won't let me buy it because like I'm underage. And he's like, God damn it! Like as somebody who knew my father, <laughs> Rob knows my my father's attitude. He's like, God damn it! And like we he, like he got so so mad that he had to, like walk into the store, um, and buy it for me. And it was just like it was like it's one of the weirdest things to think about. That's my main like memory of the Matrix Reloaded in 2003. My father like yelling because I like, had to like buy a like an R-rated movie for his 11 year old. Um, but yeah, that's kind of my main context. Like I remember being a huge thing in 2003. Um, it was probably my most hyped movie um, outside of maybe Terminator 3, as we discussed a couple years ago now. Sure. Um, both products of the summer 2003 uh, movie season. 
but yeah, that, that's kind of it. Like I was, I think I was aware of the game uh, Enter the Matrix. As someone who didn't have a PS2, it didn't mean anything to me. Uh, it was like many games during that generation of consoles. Well, as someone who was solely a GameCube kid, I was like, well, I guess I'm not playing this game because pretty much nothing ever, ever got licensed to Nintendo um, in the early 2000s that was worth playing uh, outside of Mario content. Uh, but yeah, that was kind of that was kind of my context. And obviously, we'll delve into the revolutions uh, next week. But um, yeah, that's like it was it was really big. Like in May of two thousand three, it was kind of like if you could imagine why we met, uh, why I could see as kids these days, like a few years ago, being hyped for the next Marvel release. As the, like a ten year old, all my friends, all we talked about was like the Matrix Reloaded. Like oh man, like here like the ghosty like like tw- like I identical twin characters like who are they gonna be and really i don't even remember seeing marketing for this film outside of tv spots because like i guess seeing any sort of uh trailers would have had to have been in a theater and sure. i don't think i saw a lot of r-rated films in, in 2003 in theaters okay okay yeah you i think you actually said it best zach at the start uh, for me in transition to my context you said it best at the start of yours that we're blending what we talked about last week. And I think all these Matrix movies have to blend together to some way because they are such a, you know, three parts of a whole trilogy. Um, I know I mentioned it last week, but I am fairly certain, I was racking my brain since we recorded last, about what, when I saw these and the order I saw them in, I am actually now very, very certain to just clarify something from last week. I saw this first. I saw The Matrix Reloaded first because I caught it on HBO probably in late 2003. I don't know if it was before Revolutions, it was after Revolutions, I really don't remember that, but I am kind of confident that this was the first Matrix movie I saw, and when I caught it on HBO, as I have always done with HBO things, I catch them in bits and pieces at first. I know this came up on our Freaked episode, when I watched half an hour of Freaked one morning before I went to school, and it kind of changed my worldview. I think the Matrix Reloaded might have been the same thing. Not that I have any recollection recollection of what scene I watched, but I just remember watching this so many times, whether it be all the way through, whether it be in bits and pieces, on HBO back in the early 2000s, and I fell in love with it. And Zach, to this day, re-watching it for probably the 25th time. I know I said that I rewatched The Matrix for the 10th or 15th. This is way more on my list. I fucking love this movie. This movie is so ambitious. It's so indefatigably, like, hitting you with with a giant metal pole in the face uh, to take something from the burly brawl between uh, Neo and Agent Smith. I kind of love this film, and I can't wait to get into it. But that's my context. I don't have as, as much grand stuff as uh, Zach has with his context. Now that I know you saw this movie in theater, Zach, there's a specific thing I want to ask you about, but I think we can save that till later. I'm trying to get to all the things we've mentioned so far, because I think in this whole Matrix series, we're going to be jumping all over the place. Let's start with the sex scene, because you mentioned that already. You know me, Zach, and our cinema audience knows me. I love me a good, unsexy sex scene. I don't know if the sex scene between Neo and Trinity is unsexy or not. At one hand, it's very unsexy because of all the holes that you mentioned, all the ports, It's very unsexy because it is more about the act of connecting with another human being than it is really having sex. It's intercut with the the rave slash orgy that's not a real orgy. It's more of just like a like a rave club type of scene. And at the same time, with all this being said, Neo and Trinity are quite possibly the two most emotionally reserved characters ever put to film. 
So I don't know, Zach. I kind of wanted to get your thoughts. Is the sex scene between Neo and Trinity unsexy or not? How do I rank it in unsexy sex scenes? Because half of me wants to go, yeah, it's unsexy. It's really weird, so I love it. But the other half of me goes, no, I kind of am really vibing with the emotional connection the Wachowskis are putting down. I figured what better place to start than the sex scene. So please, Zach, enlighten us on your thoughts of the sex scene. <laughs> is this the only – okay, I, I've never seen Bound, so I don't know. But is this the only sex scene we've ever seen in a, in a Wachowskis film? Yes, Bound is – uh, Bound, there is a sex scene. It's more of an intimacy scene, um, but it's very, very close up. Like, you don't really get to see a lot of the wide shots that we do of Neo and Trinity, which I think add to the unsexiness of it, because the wide shots of the sex scene in Matrix Reloaded are all about how when you're connected to humanity, you're connected. You know, it, it's not about, you know, who's fucking who, who has the power, the man or the woman. The wide shots literally tell me that's like, oh, no, these two people are just in a moment and we're watching them have this humanistic moment. Bound is very, very much close up, and it's right in the first 20 to 30 minutes of the movie. I would say that that the it's between Gina Gershon and Jennifer Tilly in Bound, so it is inherently wildly sexy because those two are very very sexy people. But they they play it more for the connection in Bound than I think they they play it for the connection in a different way. Like in Bound, Jennifer Tilly and Gina Gershon have that sex scene at the beginning because the movie wants us to realize how quickly they've become attached to each other. I think the Matrix Reloaded sex scene with its wide shots and with its really not knowing where one person's body ends and the other begins is more about connection to humanity. Does that make sense? Yes, and I think that's going to be a theme of this uh, discussion. Wait till we get to the architect scene, absolutely. Is that the Wachowskis have some phenomenal, phenomenal ideas. They just don't know how to execute them in a uh, way that, human beings can appreciate yes i i think you just hit the nail on the head i actually want to take that a little further i don't think it's so much so that they're making it difficult for human beings to appreciate they're making it difficult for human beings or moviegoers to appreciate easily i think that's the thing that i love about the wachowski so much that even when we get to revolutions when we get to uh jupiter ascending which i'm pretty sure we mentioned last week so i don't think i'm spoiling anything there when we eventually get to cloud atlas whenever the hell that's going to happen there's a lot about the connection to humanity, but it's difficult to parse through. Most film directors would say, here's a sex scene. Sex is happening. Everybody knows what sex is. It's happening. That's what it means. But the Wachowskis are somehow obfuscating the act of sex and intimacy in such a wild way that most people are going to see it, and I think, you know, in a, in a similar lens as difficult as they see Paul Verhoeven's sex scenes, where Paul Verhoeven makes these really weird, like I'm thinking of Basic Instinct and stuff like that, really weird, over-the-top sex scenes, and then when people go to Paul Verhoeven, they say, you know, this. why do you do it this way? Why do you film sex so raw and so, you know, angry? And he goes, well, that's because everyone has sex that way, and I'm the only one that wants to realize it. And the Wachowskis are kind of like, Something similar, not that, you know, they think of sex as violent, but they think of it as a more connective act than it is just the pleasure in the moment. I have a lot to say about this. I, don't, I might have meandered a little bit from your question, Zach, but I hope that makes some sense. <laughs> well, it, it makes sense. Um, it, it's just the idea that, like... Uh, Maybe like, to it, answer, your, answer your question, Bound is the most sexual Wachowski's movie. 
The Matrix Reloaded is probably mean their much. No, 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 not at all. But it doesn't mean much. The second, the second movie of the Matrix, Matrix Reloaded, that's probably their second most sexual movie. And then I think, of course, when we get to Speed Racer, there's no sex at all. There's romance with Christina Ricci. Don't get me wrong, you know, but it's not as intimate. Cooties, cooties, cooties. Yes, the whole end, the whole thing of the Sparkle and Chim Chim coming out in doctor's coats, warning you about cooties at the very end. Yes, of course, that's a that's that's very reserved from intimacy. Jupiter ascend. Sorry, Jupiter ascending as we'll talk about, that has some reservations with his sexuality. That's more of the love of humanity once again. But I I kind of want to bring up Cloud Atlas. Cloud Atlas, the scenes of sex are rude, I guess I would say, in that movie. Um, you know, you have the clone. You have the clone in Neo Soul storyline getting raped by the customers. Not raped, but groped. And I, and I do think Hugh Grant dressed up as a Korean man is raping some of the clones at a certain point in, in Cloud Atlas. I'm, I'm misremembering if that's just in the book or in the movie or both. But, but yeah, I mean, it's, this is kind of why I wanted to bring up this question. Is a sex scene that relies more on human intimacy than it does pleasure in the moment inherently unsexy. But I guess that's a more of a personal question. You well, might I think ha- it, go I, for well, it. Well, okay, this, this is my response to that. Is that, like, once again, it, it feels, much like my opinion on everything about this movie, it feels disjointed and jarring. Because while that sex scene is happening, we're having the rave where we get so much. I don't even know if there's a term for it. <laughs> I know like there's a Family Guy bit somewhere where like we get like like the thing of like you cut on the side boob hour. Here we oh, have yeah. Angelina Jolie side boob. Wow, Here that's a really Jennifer. early episode of Family Guy. Yeah, <laughs> but like hi there, and welcome to the Peter Griffin side boob hour. A wonderful look back on all the partial nudity network television used to offer. Look at that side boob. Check out this side boob. How about that side boob? That turn you on? Well, it shouldn't, because that's my side boob. Good night, everybody. The side boob hour? And this is the thing. Is that, like, we get so much just, like, oh, God, nipples, like, poking through, like, loose-fitting, thin, oh, yeah. super thin tank tops. Um, and we get people grinding on each other. It's like that very early 2000s rave energy. Mm-hmm. If you didn't have that, I don't think like like it's 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 oh god, it's a sex scene where like someone doesn't understand what makes a sex scene like provocative. Like the Wachowski is like this is what people find sexy, right? People with a lot of holes, just like. Oh, God, in, like, throws with each other where we have, like, a rave going on and it's, like, intermixed again, like, intercut with each other. And it's just, like, I I, I guess. Like, well, this fe- yes. like, this movie feels like, a, like, oh, God, what's that thing we see? We haven't done it in a little while with the internet, but, like, it's, like, oh, like, I gave a computer program a thousand hours of, like, Olive Garden oh, sure, and asked sure. it to write, like, the script to one. This is what it feels like if you gave a computer program a thousand hours of The Matrix to digest and decide to write a the matrix sequel i know what you're saying but i think that's getting to the essence of my question and why i wanted to bring it up is it the fact that they are they're landing on the things that they think make something sexy but are wrong for mass audiences or are they consciously aware of what makes a sex scene sexy and doing the opposite to relay the fact that neo is falling in love with a person instead of humanity because that is also the big big reveal of this movie that his machinations as the one are different from his predecessors where he has not fallen in love with humanity as a whole he's fallen in love 
with humanity through the lens of one woman. And I think that that's what they're – this is once again what we have talked – we did it last week, Zach. Don't think I don't remember. I said my favorite scene in the original Matrix movie is when the Oracle gives him a cookie. And I went on a five-minute diatribe about what cookies do on the internet. I am still kind of giving credit to the Wachowskis. I think they are removing the sexuality for the most part. You know, don't get me wrong. There are nipples poking through shirts all over the place, which is sexual. But they're removing the sexuality as best they can to make sure we are realizing at the start of this movie that humanity needs to thrive. And we now have the one, the savior, who's being followed by all these weird, you know, monks and pilgrims, it seems, to give him praise and ask for their, their child's or children's protective, protectivity, whatever the word would be. And instead of being with humanity, Neo chooses to go and sleep with Trinity, and their sex scene ends with him crying. It, it, it's, it's so unsexy, it's so humanistic. I, I'm still on the side of the Wachowskis that I think they knew exactly what they were doing. If that, well, if, I, that's the I problem, think, though, we're think, never going to know. I think they. I don't think there's any part of this movie that they're not doing what they don't want to do. Sure. But I think that they don't know how to convey their ideas effectively to the audience. I think it's like George mm. again. It's George Lucas prequel level in that like okay, I want to make an angsty twenty year old that doesn't know how he feels about women. So what am I gonna write? I don't like sand. It's coarse and rough and it gets everywhere. <laughs> and I think that's that's what it is. Like I think intent, A plus, execution, C plus. Like it gets over the goal line, but just barely. Okay, okay. I'm I'm glad you mentioned that that last little ranking you did there because I think that's gonna come up throughout this whole discussion of this movie. Like I all different record, aspects of it. I want it on the record that like I don't dislike this film, but I get why people like not that they I get why people rejected this. Good. Good point, Zach. Thank you. I fucking love this movie. I, I know I said last week that if you if you went out to like my top 100, maybe 150 movies of all time, you'd probably catch the original Matrix in there. I'm tempted to say this is like my top 60 movies of all time. I fucking love the Matrix Reloaded. Like, <laughs> type 60 movies. Of yes, all yeah. I'm trying. I'm trying about, to be Rob, specific. Rob, 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 while we're at it, maybe is it maybe top 50. Five. Oh, it, might, it might land at 57 right now, but I'm not sure. No, I haven't, I've never done a ranking that far out. But but I'm glad you bring the, what you just set up because, of course, you know, um, we're going to talk about how we enjoy this movie in different ways, how I think it's awesome. But you, you actually brought up something that I wanted to get at, which was um, uh, relating to the, the making of this movie. I agree with you that, yes, the Wachowskis are very, very specific with what they want. They always have been, whether it be, you know, from Bound all the way to Jupiter Ascending, they're very specific with what they want. But, of course, I think Zach would know that when you are following up something like The Matrix, it's not just going to be carte blanche. Uh, and yes, I said the French version to not reference our favorite podcast of all time, Zach. But I wanted to see if you actually read this, Zach. Very recently, within like a year and a half ago, there was actually an interview with Bill Pope in, I think it was called um, the Team Deacons podcast from what I researched. Uh, this was in the summer of 2020. So like I said, a little, little over a year ago. He had a quote about making the Matrix sequels because, of course, they recorded or, sorry, filmed Reloaded and Revolutions at the same time. Zach, did you did you read what Bill Pope said about making these two movies? Did this no, come up Rob, in your research? Okay, enlighten me. I would love to enlighten you and the rest of our audience because I fucking love this quote. Okay, so on this on this interview on this podcast, uh, Bill Pope, director of photography, of course, said, "I quote." 
everything that was good about the first experience was not good about the last two. We weren't free anymore. People were looking at you. There was a lot of pressure. In my heart, I didn't like them. I felt we should be going in another direction. There was a lot of friction and a lot of personal problems, and it showed up on screen, to be honest with you. It was not my most elevated moment, nor was it anyone else's. The Wachowskis had read this damn book by Stanley Kubrick that said, actors don't do natural performances until you wear them out. So let's go to take 90. I want to dig Stanley Kubrick up and kill him. End quote. (laughs) Is that that, real? Yes. Yeah, from everything. This started as an IMDb trivia fact. I found the podcast. I listened to him say it. And it's fucking amazing. Kind of incredible. But, That's but this, kind of incredible. Yes. One, well, one, I think both you and Isaac, we love that last sentence. I want to dig Stanley Kubrick up and kill him. <laughs> but, but I have to say that I think this gets at what you were saying. There was a lot of pressure on the team to create the sequel to The Matrix. But it sounds like at the same time, the Wachowskis were given a lot of leeway with this, you know, you know, we want to go to take 90. We want to get natural performances and air quotes, whatever that means. So I think there is in the background a great confluence or maybe um, a budding of heads regarding the people working on this movie and the Wachowskis, dare I say, being a little too high on their own success. That's something I wanted to know if you know more about. Because, of course, we're looking at four years between these two movies. I, I well, have to imagine I think, that the Wachowskis well, had an idea and they stuck with it and a lot of people didn't really believe in them. But they said, well, you made the Matrix, so keep going, right? Well, yeah, well yes. I clear, again, I, I honestly cannot think of another filmmaker that's able to run off of the, oh, God, power of a blank check mm-hmm. as long as the Wachowskis. Like, they've had, honestly, two successful films, <laughs> uh, The Matrix and The Matrix Reloaded. And yep. Reloaded clearly left a bad taste in mass audiences' mouths. And yet it didn't – it took Jupiter Ascend- – I'm sorry, Jupiter, Jupiter Ascending yes, yes. to finally kind of just kill that momentum after, God, 10-plus years. I, 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 oh, God. That's I, – I never knew they were they followed that sort of thing of just like let's just like – God, degrade – no, I want to say degrade, but just kind of like wear the actors into oblivion like Kubrick yeah. did. yeah. And, and it's, it's not doing. only Kubrick. They mentioned Bill Pope mentioned Kubrick in the um, interview, but of course, you know what Fincher does. This Fincher's the one who what very famously said with Jake. I think it was Jake Gyllenhaal in Zodiac. He's like, well, I like Jake Gyllenhaal because there's something that happens after I've been working him for ten hours straight at three in the morning that really gets me a good performance. And it's like, yeah, yeah actors aren't cattle, you know. But that's that's my opinion. But other directors have different opinions, of course. <laughs> sure, um, I never knew that about them. So that kind of. Which kind of makes this film even more inexplicable because pretty much everybody's doing the exact same thing they did in the first movie. Yeah, it's just outside of Morpheus, every single performance is extremely nuanced. I know that's kind of an oxymoron, um, but nobody has any inflections except for maybe Gloria Foster at times. <laughs> well, well, that um, I'm glad you say that, and that's a reason I wanted to bring up this quote is because. I never thought of the Wachowskis as doing this either. Like, I, I mentioned Fincher, Kubrick. You know, we know we know our directors who treat their actors like cattle. What, I'm Hitchcock, famously, I think, you know? But at the end of the day, I've never thought that the Wachowskis have beaten a performance out of their actors. You know, we, we talked about last week, we will talk about with Jupiter Ascending, um, that we don't think it's the actor's fault. We think they're doing what the Wachowskis told them to do. And this kind of gives a new light on that in the sense that maybe the Wachowskis are, maybe not all the time, but sometimes trying to beat a performance out of their actors. But 
I don't think they are actors, directors, whereas a Kubrick who can get the performances from, say, Jack Nicholson in The Shining by doing it's like, hey, when you're in the freezer, I'm going to shoot one five second sequence from every conceivable angle and we're going to see which one works the best. And Jack Nicholson is going to lose his mind. When I read the quote that I just read to you, you in the audience, I think that the Wachowskis beat a performance out of our actors, out of Carrie Ann Moss, out of... Uh, uh, Keanu Reeves and everybody in this movie to the extent that they wanted to remove all emotion from them. Like I can see a lot of instances where, uh, you know, Keanu Reeves is talking to Morpheus or the Keymaker or whoever. Uh, I want to leave the Merovingian for later. That's a whole different beast. But they've done so many takes that Keanu Reeves is dead tired. It's like I'm watching somebody who hasn't slept in five days and hasn't had coffee in a week. Like, he is so emotionally reserved. And I think that's what you were saying with nuanced. But I'm kind of confused on how to actually feel about it. Whether it be beaten down and tired or nuanced. You know what I mean? I just, okay, I, again, it's hard because the Wachowskis don't give a lot of public interviews. Yeah, another quick fact I wanted to mention. I, uh, I think we mentioned this briefly last week, or Zach and I have mentioned it briefly sometime. One of the contract stipulations for the deal of doing Reloaded and Revolutions back-to-back was extremely limited press conferences for the Wachowskis. <laughs> that is why it is so hard to hear them give interviews about things. And I think that's the thing. We, we really don't know a lot into their psyche. Uh, when it came to filming these movies, mm-hmm. um, but getting back to the performances, like every character feels like again, uh, God, every character like like oh God, who's your favorite character's name? I, you all, he's um from Lost. He's the uh, Link. Oh, uh, yeah, Link. Link played by Harold Perrineau in this movie. Harold, what, Harold what, Perrineau is a fantastic he, actor. I don't think he's my favorite character who, in this Rob, movie, though. Rob, but what what is he like to yell in Lost season two? <laughs> Zach, I have in my notes. I literally wrote, "Dig up the clip, <laughs> the supercut <laughs> of Harold Perrineau screaming Walt for for ninety percent of Lost season two. I will put that clip in." I'm not going back without Walt! Where are you, man? Walt! Let take me! Come take me! I'm coming for Walt! Walt! I'm not leaving him out here! say his name again ever because that fucking supercut is so good if zach or our cinema audience remembers it is the supercut of every time michael his harold Perrineau's character in lost calls michael he screams walt and at the very end the person who i, I grabbed this from put it's, it's like walt 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 never say his name again <laughs> It's awesome. So yes, thank you, Zach. I have to bring that up. But no, Harold Perrineau's great. I don't. Can we, I don't oh, want to get too much into that. Okay, are we taking this we, can tangent? Can we talk about? Okay, before we start pinballing over the place, can we talk about the one le- like legitimate joke there was written into this movie? Are you talking about the pussy joke? Because <laughs> I don't know. I don't know if that's a joke. <laughs> I don't know how to feel about that. Where's that- my puss? Hey. <laughs> <laughs> Where's my puss? Hey! I got it! God! 
It is so strange for the Wachowskis. I mean, the, what, the next closest thing we get to a joke is uh, Mila Kunis going, I love dogs. I've always loved dogs. Dog can fuck me. Whatever she says in that movie. <laughs> <laughs> oh, God. Where is my put? Hey! hey! <laughs> so Great. my question for you, Zach, is if if the, um what, the, the sister-in-law, I don't know what, um, Gina Torres is the one with the kids who leaves. That's um Lawrence Fishburne's wife. I know that. If if she was not there, if Link was walking back into a little, you know, hellhole in Zion to his wife, is his goal just to say, where's my pussy? And then they start fucking like what? Who? What is what? Is, how would that have played out if children weren't there? I guess is my question. Where Where is the natural just, extension uh, of that uh, interaction? Uh, it's just one inexplicable moment amongst many in this film. <laughs> Like if only I guess that like like that is just one like any other movie that would be the most jarring moment where it'd be like Jesus like that just took me out of the plot. I'm also glad it, that you said that it was the one joke in the movie because that's what I was also thinking when I was rewatching this. I was like, are there any other jokes in the movie? The closest thing to a joke other than that line is when uh, Neo, Trinity, and Morpheus are trying to escape the Merovingia's mansion, and the twins turn into ghosts, and and more. Uh, sorry, Trinity goes. That's a neat trick. Like, that's not a joke, but that's the next closest thing we get to a joke, right? But, there's, but that's the thing, though, is that, like, there's a lot of deadpan humor in deadpan, this. Deadpan, thank you. Deadpan is exactly the word for it, yeah. Because we had the moment with the twins, too, where, like, Morpheus has one of them pinned, like, like at the door, and he's shooting his arm. And, he, and like, one of them's like, can we move this along? Can yes. We, and, like, there, there's stuff like that. Um, that I even, have to say, like, I, did, ha- I did laugh a lot in that one moment in the freeway chase where the twins are, they're like, you know, we are getting aggravated. Yes, we are. And I'm like, what the fuck is this? I love it. <laughs> but the thing, though, it's like, I think those moments, I, I don't think, oh, God, like, we're at a weird point with the Wachowskis, like, in their filmography. <laughs> when they were making these films, I don't think they were going for camp. Not at all. Not and yet, at all. You, by the time you get to, like, Jupiter Ascending... There is a lot of camp. Oh, absolutely, absolutely. And I think I think the big difference is, and one of the things I know we're going to talk about a lot next week with Revolutions, is they're influenced by anime and manga and Japanese and or Hong, Hong Kong filmmakers. I, I think that they are looking at this stuff that we in America see as kind of cheesy or campy, like you said, but it's played entirely straight. I mean, I don't know, Zach, Zach, the last time you ever read anything like manga was or anything, the last anime I watched finally was Neon Genesis Evangelion. That is a very, very self-serious story. But there's moments in it that just don't culturally mix, you know? It's it's my my growing up doesn't mix with the the affectation or the... You know the cultural norms that the writers of Evangelion were coming from, and I think that's what the Wachowskis are doing. They see a lot of this stuff as so so serious that we're just kind of not used to over here in America, and I think that is a big detriment to why so many well, people derided this sequel. Is I that think, exact well, mix do, of tones? I think, I think yes, you're correct. But I think there's also a thing too where the Wachowskis drank their own Kool Aid, and they think oh, they are. I don't want to say they're beyond reproach. But I think they feel that like okay, we, we are making something above everything else. It's it's that ivory. Ta- I think there's a lot of ivory tower. I absolutely saw in this. I would agree with and you. That, yeah, not that this is kind of this movie's condescending at all. I think it's way too muddled for it to be condescending. <laughs> um, but I think there's some overly grand ideas that just clearly have not been fleshed out. Like in the sense of like. 
the concept is there. They 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 have a firm grasp at what they're trying to what they know works. Yes. They just have a very horrible time of communicating it. Forget about to the audience, but to their actors. Ah, uh, and that's something I know we talk about a lot when we uh, discuss Jupiter Ascending, which will come up later in this month. But, Zach, I also want to add to your point. Are these ideas not fully baked and have trouble connecting to major audiences because of the Wachowskis making this movie? Or is it because of the Wachowskis demanding that the full story is told through many different forms of media because we have not yet talked about the animatrix or enter the matrix and how it plays into this movie before i before you give me the corner to talk about that just what do you think about that idea don't you think that there was some notion of once again could be ivory tower syndrome like you were describing that they felt so so i don't know uh, commanded to tell a giant story throughout not only the movies but through shorts that played before other movies before straight to internet shorts through a video game. They had this transmedia idea that was so widespread, it was really before its time, I think. Oh, 100% it's ahead of its time. Um, but this is the thing, though. Like, Warner Brothers was always known as the studio that catered to filmmakers. Yes. Going all the way back to Kubrick, oddly enough. And I could see them very much letting them do this. Um, yes, you have a lot of other media kind of, like, wiggling its way through here. But I think... I don't want. Like I, said, I def, this is one of those movies I definitely do want to like highlight specific moments, um, but I think the ideas are there. They're just not communicated appropriately. Um, and this goes like again, like one of those moments where we see uh, Monica Bellucci and she shoots one of the henchmen of the Merovingian, mm-hmm. and she makes a comment about the silver bullets. And it's like, oh, like, like if you really, really, like you were saying, dig into like the mythology of the Matrix, like watch all three movies like a dozen plus times yep. and dig into the mythology there's a lot to appreciate but it takes like an insane level of interest to get to that okay and i get it not every form of media should be superficial in that like okay like all you gotta do is consume it a handful of times and you're and you're able to digest it on every facet but i do think that there's this everything like things that should be I don't want to say focused on, but everything just kind of, I think it's also pay. Okay. I don't want to jump too far ahead. Cause I feel like I'm putting the cart before the horse. It is like just one thing. One point I just want to get out of the way when it comes to this movie is the pacing. Okay. This movie is so, so determined to just barrel ahead. And I think this is my, this is one of my complaints in the first movie that they really kind of just went ahead with regardless this movie is so concerned with just hitting certain points that it loses, oh God, track of the overall message they want to communicate. Okay. Do you think... But go back to your point. That do you, you think that... Well, with my point and what you just said, do you think that is a failing of the movie or do you think it is a pure commitment to making the audience gather different forms of information before seeing this movie that's where i'm confused can you really say that this movie is not fully fleshed out when it seems for all intents and purposes the wachowskis are saying yeah that's purposeful go play the video game go watch the shorts that's the only way you're going to understand this giant story we're trying to tell i i don't i don't think so because as somebody who's never played enter the matrix as somebody who's only watched the animatrix once um I'm able to, through reading enough analysis on the sequels, glean what it is that they're trying to get at. 
The problem is that it's so opaque. Like, the Merovingian is probably the most... In- oh, God, it's so weird to say this. He's probably <laughs> one of the most provocative characters into, like, what I want to see from this world. I know, like, prior to Resurrections even being announced, I- I- I've said it on this podcast. I'm like, I just... I want a Matrix 4 because I just want to go back to this world. Did you see Not that Merovingian ca- Lambert Wilson is signed on for Matrix 4? Did you see that? When I was doing my research for this, I saw that, and I'm so this, fucking whoa, excited. Whoa, 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 whoa! Is this IMB, IMDb nonsense, or is this like like a press release? This is from everything I found. He's uh, he's on board. He was he's got listed in the press release that just announced Christina Ricci very recently. Yeah, oh my I'm God, fucking I'm excited. excited too, man. You know I the last thing? More. You know what I know okay, Lambert pro, Wilson pro. from? I know him from these movies, and he's the faux villain in in Catwoman, Halle Berry's Catwoman. Those Rob, are the only Rob, two fucking things Rob, I know him from. Rob, Rob. <laughs> If we get sex cake in the Matrix Reloaded, what are we getting in Resurrections? What's the evolution of sex cake? Sex cake. Is it erotic eclair? Is that is that the next Ooh, er- erotic eclair? Something like that. You know? <laughs> I just I just want to throw it out here while we're talking about the Merovingian because we have we have so much to do. We're still bouncing around though. Uh, when he swears in French. He says, and I'm sorry, I'm sorry to my mother especially, but the rest of the cinema audience, I don't speak French. Uh, from what I've gathered through subtitles and stuff, he says, Nom de Dieu de Putain de Bordel de Mer de Saloperie de Canard d'Ancula de Tomer, which translates to the closest I could find without asking my mother about this because that would have been uh, a rough conversation. He says, I love swearing in French, and then goes on to say in French, Goddamn whore, filthy shit house, jerk bugger of your mother. And then says, it's like wiping your ass with silk. And I'm like, I'm kind of with you, Zach. This is the most interesting thing I've seen in a long, long time. (laughs) Nobody's ever acted like this before. Goddamn Merovingian. (laughs) He is, like I said, and he has my favorite moment in in the resurrection. um, Resurrections. In Revolutions as well. Yes, yes. We don't have time for this shit. (laughs) (laughs) We literally don't. That'll be next week. We don't have time for that shit, Zach. Oh God! Um, but I, okay, well, I, I guess. Oh God, do we wait to save it for sex cake? We should, we should wait. It's going to be in our snacks. Can I, can I please? Can I please tease my thoughts? I would on love sex to cake? know. Yeah, because I, I don't know where the extension of sex cake is. We know where the um, diminutive version of it is. That's in Under the Skin when Scarlett Johansson pukes up the chocolate cake. Yeah, this is the yes. this is the continuation. But yeah, I don't know. I didn't give thought to what's the next level or anything like that. Okay, this, this, okay. I, I, we'll get to the next level when we delve into that sequence. Okay, okay. But my overall thoughts on that, like, sequence in the film itself, possibly the most misogynistic thing that has ever been put to blockbuster cinema. I would say oh. it's more egregious than Michael Bay nonsense. Oh my it, fucking my, god, Zach. Yes. Because I it, totally forgot. With, with how many goddamn times I've seen this movie, I completely forgot that the implication was that he gives that woman the orgasm cake and then goes and gets a blowjob from her in the bathroom. I totally forgot that's the implication. The whole lipstick thing, the whole Persephone, Monica Bellucci saying she's he, he's in the ladies' room because the whole Neo kissing thing is in the men's room. She goes in there to prove a point that he didn't go to take a piss. I'm like, holy shit, how did I not pick this or forget about it, you know? <laughs> It is literally the most misogynistic thing in blockbuster cinema. What is this? I, I have no lipstick. There is no lipstick on me. It is not on your face, dear. What is this? What is this? This is a game. And he's just... I'll put the clip in. It is so fucking over the top and wild. I love it. <laughs> God, my God, Josephine, how could you do this? You betray me. You did it. 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 You did it
Cause and effect, my love. Cause? There is no cause for this. What cause? What cause? How about the lipstick you're still wearing? Lipstick? Lipstick? <laughs> what craziness are you talking about, woman? There is no lipstick? She wasn't kissing your face, my love. Ay, 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 woman, but this is nothing. C'est rien, c'est rien du tout. It is a game. It is only a game. So is this? Have fun. And this is the thing that I find so fascinating about, like, blockbuster, like, cinema and just, like, the media that we live in these days. If this was any other filmmaker, <laughs> they would have been destroyed over this sequence. <laughs> and yet, in the entire, like, press tour for Resurrections, that sequence will not be referenced once. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And it is maybe, like I said, say what you will about Michael Bay, whether it be Megan Fox or any of his other, like, faux, just, like, Hitchcock blondes that he's used over the years. Easily. This is a male character using yep. his power and influence for sexual gain from a woman who's not aware of it. What and do yet, all men in power want? More power. Absolutely. <laughs> what all men in power want is orgasm cake, Rob. Orgasm cake. <laughs> oh, the Merovingian. What a doozy. I'm he, so he's, glad he comes back for the third in, movie. In the worst way possible, he's the most amazing character ever. Ah, oh, yeah, yeah. I, it, in the worst way possible. Yeah, yeah. I'm being ironic. It's so he compelling. Is like the worst, it, he's so the worst. He literally, like, he's just there as, like, he's a flourish. Yep. Oh, he's yeah. A, like, and that's only my, like, my biggest problem with this movie is that there are so many flourishes over substance. Like, oh, things sure. happen just solely for, like, like the Wachowskis just kind of, like, oh, God, like, take, again, much like he says, like, wiping your ass with silk. That is what this is. Mm-hmm. It's just to, like, shine us on. And I find it, it, it's blockbuster cinema. It's detestable. But the fact that Resurrection, oh, God, I keep saying that, Revolutions was rejected <laughs> means that mass audiences didn't go with the flow with this, which is... Yep. Like, I guess I, I'm so like whereas you love this film, I'm so conflicted about this movie because like I appreciate it for what it is, but at the same time, it, it's so reminiscent once again of like Denis Villeneuve's Dune, in that like it's another hollow blockbuster experience. That wow. mass Ho- hollow works for Dune. I don't think hollow works for this movie at all. If anything, this movie is furthest for, this is the movie where it's like you might think it starts as hollow like it's you might think it's a chocolate easter bunny with nothing in the middle but it turns out it's a russian nesting doll of chocolate easter bunnies this movie's so fucking dense but that's it's dense but it's, and then one of them's made out of plastic well, and it's weird well, and you can't chew it <laughs> it cuts your gum yeah yeah you exactly and there's razor blades um, sticking out of it from the start you know you shouldn't pick it up on halloween but, is, but you do but anyway this is, but this is the thing though is that like the wood cha- okay there is a very, very, it's, there's a very firm core to this movie. Yes. But I think every layer gets thinner and thinner, almost like wafer thin. And that's the problem. Is it like most people kind of just like, like you said, Rob, Russian nesting doll, but the, the core is there, but with every single layer, something is lost. And I think and this film has so many layers to it that, like, by the time you get to it, it's almost like Fabergé egg level where, like, you just slightly just, like, blow on it and it starts to crumble. <laughs> I, I know what you're saying. I think these – yes, I agree with you. Some of the layers are thin, but I think they are all interconnected and and very, very importantly laid out. But 
I'm glad we're getting to this, because after, what, 40 minutes or something like that, we can't really talk about the meat of this movie until we talk about the Animatrix and the Enter the Matrix and what came before it. But even before that, Zach, we have something else to discuss. Go ahead, Rob. Go on your diatribe. I have not. At, well, this first part before my diatribe, this is this is both of us. I I kind of don't remember because I have not edited our um, uh, episode on the first movie. Do we know what we're calling this series yet? Did we end on anything? Is it the Wachowskis? Is it the the Matrix? Did we have any good ideas? Have, have we the had Wachowski any series? No, no, <laughs> no, 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 no. We don't replace any words. We don't portmanteau any words or anything like that. But Rob, you love portmanteaus. I do love portmanteaus, but not for our podcast series titles. Uh, the the closest we'll ever get is Fort Month. That that is okay because that's probably a real word. Wachowski's cast? No, no, no. Pod and Chowski don't go together. It should be the Wachowski series because we've done the Martin Bress series, we've done the Danny DeVito series. The Hell, Wachowski's maybe. Cast? Oh, Jesus Christ, Zach. Okay, <laughs> so let me put this down in my notes. Uh, I, I wrote down. Do we know what we're calling the series yet? No. Okay, let's move on now. Animatrix, Zach. You said last week and earlier today that you've only seen the Animatrix once. So I'm going to just assume. Please correct me if I'm wrong. You did not watch any more of the Animatrix. I have. All I have is one snapshot memory of this. And it's like a bunch of machines like running away from something. That is my okay. sole memory <laughs> of this. Fair. So there are two Animatrix stories that take place between the first and second movies. Those are Kid's Story and Final Flight of the Osiris, which I want to talk about. But there's something I noticed in preparation for this recording that I did not notice when we did our first Matrix episode where I watched some of the Animatrix segments. I cannot find anything on the internet about this. Like, I really have tried to dig deep into, like, Reddit and forums to see if anybody is saying something that I'm saying. The Animatrix, as it exists on HBO Max, as of yesterday, is out of order. They have fucked up the order of the segments. It should start with the final flight of the Osiris, but it doesn't. If you just sat down and watched the Animatrix on HBO Max right now, it would start with Second Renaissance Part 1 and 2, which I discussed last week. It should start with Final Fight of the Osiris. The version that I have from the mid-2000s starts with the Final Fight of the Osiris. And here, just hear me out, Zach, this is where it gets even crazier. If you scrub through the Animatrix on HBO Max to find the final fight of the Osiris, you will see that it is the last segment in this hour and 40 minutes. What's even stranger is that if you watch this, the whatever segment is right before it, I think on HBO Max that might be a detective story. If you finish that segment and go into the next one, it starts with Digital Rain, just like all the segments do, but then it displays the title card, The Animatrix. And then it shows the final fight of the Osiris title card. They, I don't know how they fucking did it, but HBO Max is out of order. They have ruined, they have changed, I don't know if I say ruined or anything, but they have changed the DVD release order of the Animatrix. And I cannot find anybody else talking about this, and I think it's wild. And just to reiterate, if you watch the last segment on HBO Max, it has a title card and credits like it was the beginning of the movie. Zach, have you ever heard anything about this? I know you haven't watched it, but like we talked about the green color timing and anything. Have you heard anything about them messing up the order of the Animatrix? Not, no, but as we know, Warner Brothers is playing kind of loose and fast with the yes. Matrix franchise <laughs> over the last 20 plus years. Absolutely. I So I have no good answers. I just wanted to point that out for everybody because it seems like I'm, I'm the first person to notice this because I can't find anything else about people talking about it. Even if you Google, like, the how should I watch the Matrix movies, you know, if you look for posts or articles about, like, what order should I watch the Matrix and the Animatrix in and that type of stuff. 
they will use the timestamps for the segments that are on HBO Max. But if you own the DVD of the Animatrix, or if you own the copy that I have that is, I presume, I believe, ripped from the DVD, it's an entirely different order. I just thought that was crazy. I'm doing my due diligence with letting everybody know that HBO Max has fucked up the Animatrix. With that being said, Zach, a kid's story, okay? You know that kid who's really annoying in the second Matrix movie that wants to work with Neo and Trinity and talks about he was saved by them all the time? Yeah, we have a whole animated segment about that. And it's kind of pretty good. <laughs> the, the animation style is very, very reminiscent of French hand-drawn styles. So like uh, a little bit of Sylvain Chaumet, when motion blur and motion starts to kick in, they almost look more like, like Edvard Monk paintings and things like that. It's really, really cool. There's some compositing with some real-life aspects that make me think of you know the amazing world of Gumball and stuff like that. But I love the animation. In terms of story, it's pretty, pretty straightforward. This kid who's just called Kid, in the movie and in this short, he's feeling like Neo in the original movie, like detached from the world, that his senses are lying to him, that there's something out there that he's not really grasping, or something's wrong with with the world he's living in. Um, He has a conversation with someone on the computer, very reminiscent of the original Matrix movie, the opening with Neo and Trinity, and that, like, follow the white rabbit type of stuff. The person on the computer tells Kid that he has to risk everything to find the truth, He goes to school, he's all disjointed, you know, he's a mess, he's very depressed, that type of stuff. He gets a phone call from Neo while he's in school, and it is Neo, it's actually Keanu Reeves doing the voice acting, and while he's in school, you know, Neo says to him, they know you know, and you need to run. There's this big chase sequence, of course, he tries to get out of the school, can't get out because agents have showed up, he goes to the top of the school, when he gets to the roof, agents are surrounding him, and he chooses to jump. So he jumps off of the roof of his school building, and it cuts to black, and it cuts to his headstone, stating that his name is Michael Carl Popper. No date on the headstone, just the name Michael Carl Popper, which I've never remembered was the kid's name, uh, because it's never said in Matrix Reloaded. He's mourned for killing himself. You know, there's a a graveyard scene where his teachers were like, oh, we wish we could have helped him. Oh, this is some weird type of defense mechanism when people just don't belong. Like, there's some actual reflection on the idea of suicide, which is really, I really appreciate in, in this type of story. But then the last scene is that the kid wakes up. The kid wakes up in one of the ships, presumably the Nebuchadnezzar. And he's listening to Neo and Trinity talk about the idea of self-substantiation, that this kid freed himself from the Matrix. And it ends with the kid saying, Neo, you saved me. And Neo responds, no, you saved yourself. And that comes back in The Matrix Reloaded. In the scene at the beginning with the kid, he's like, Neo, I want to work with the Nebuchadnezzar. Like, you guys seem right. You know, I know Morpheus hasn't filled in the spots, but you guys saved me. And Neo says, you saved yourself. I kind of fucking love the idea that someone freed themselves from the Matrix. Albeit through suicide, that's a very depressing thing. But I, I love that notion of self-substantiation. There's even some, I think there's a line with, from Trinity in the Animatrix short where she says, we've never seen this before, we've only thought it to be possible. And I'm like, that is really fucking cool. Question, though. If he didn't take the red pill, how the hell did they find him to get him out of his pod, right? <laughs> well, that's the thing about this, is that, like, once again, they have a lot of great ideas. Yes. They're just not fully cooked through. And that's the thing. Like, that plot, that, like, plot beat would be infinitely more interesting than, like, watching them, like, trying to blow up an energy plant. 
Like, I, like, that's the thing that makes me so frustrated about the Matrix Reload is, like, watching Trinity, like, do a backflip with a motorcycle and blow up, like, a guard station, and then having, like, a five-minute sequence of her, like, falling out of, like, a window yep. and having another instance of bullet time with an agent. It's like, this is, we've seen this. We've been there before. Like, there's a famous Jimmy C quote. Like, you, you can't use the same trick on the audience twice. That sort of thing would be infinitely more interesting to watch. The idea of like after we start from the first film, in the intricate intricate process they do, like getting Neo after he's taken the red pill, like that's something I would love to see. Like that'd be a great like five minute prologue. Sure. Yet, sure. yet weirdly, and this is where it's that weird balance of like we like the Wachowskis have autonomy, but I love to know what the studio notes were for this mm. because like they have fa- again, it's the George Lucas thing. They are fantastic idea persons fantastic producers but i think when it comes to executing their vision they have a horrible horrible time communicating it to people yeah no you're you're not wrong zach but even even if if you think their communication style is horrible i still kind of love it for some reason which i'm sure we'll get into more with the movie i think there's some level of the wachowskis know how to hide the exact right amount of story for me to keep me on board it's once again i know i think we actually mentioned it last time it's also kind of the lost conundrum i love lost because every time a question get answers gets answered 30 more questions arise and that's kind of how i feel about the matrix universe and i love that idea but that's the thing though so like i don't i'm not looking for answers i'm just looking for things just concepts follow through fair fair okay like there's things in this that we don't like we, we emphasize like i said there's a lot of flourishes in this movie that are unnecessary where there's actual ideas I wish we could have spent time like drilling into not in like again, everybody knows who's heard me talk about Star Wars I hate it when things are over explained mm. but just give them their due when it comes to attention like and of course seeing the mate like the thing that got a matrix acclaim with mass audiences were the action sequences is action sequences and that's fine but we have numerous action sequences in this that are gratuitous and don't add anything because there's no there's no stakes to it. Sure, sure. Like the entire like sequence in the I don't know what you would call it foyer um, with the Merovingian's guard. There is no point to that sequence other than action sequence. <laughs> yeah, not at all. I mean, don't get me wrong. It's beautiful to look at. Do I love the notion of let's fight in a place where there are just tons of weapons on the wall? Hell yeah. A a very, you know, kind of internal animalistic part of me loves that. But you are so fucking right, Zach, that that scene has no purpose. <laughs> they could have cut from before that action scene started and go, Neo, hold them off. We're going to go protect the Keymaker. And you could have cut out 15 minutes of the movie. Absolutely. Exactly. And that's a weird thing. Like You have that setup of the idea of like, okay, Neo can hold his own against, God, how many, uh, what, at least 100 plus uh, Smiths? I-, I call that the Thousand Smith battle in reference to Kingdom Hearts 2's The Thousand Heartless battle. <laughs> But you're probably right. There's only probably a hundred Smiths or 150. And but, then yeah. you get that. But that's the thing, though. Like, like very easily, they sh- like, and you have that sequence. And then you have that moment toward the end with the Keymaker and Morpheus, and it'd be like, okay, like, oh god, how's he get out of this? And all he does is he literally just grabs like what the two of them and just throws them at the door. Yes, or, yes. Or not them. I'm sorry, not the Keymaker, just Morpheus. And it's like, okay, like you have the setup, but very little payoff. Then. I know you what have you're saying. This, but then you have the inverse of that with the architect and what – because I'm not going to delve into that. But like you have a huge payoff but very little setup. 
Sure. And, it's like, no, no, yeah. and, and like this film has a hard time of just balancing its levels. And I think that's the problem with, with the Wachowskis. It's that same Lucas thing that by the time they were making these films, nobody was telling them no. No one was asking them to just refine their ideas. And that's why, like, and, and pretty much that happened all the way, I would imagine, maybe till Resurrections. And that, like, they just been able to do whatever they want. No one ever challenges them. Sure. Excuse me. No one's ever able to challenge them. And that's why you just get all these just kind of ideas that are scattershot. See, I, I totally get what you're this, this might just be the fucking, like, this, this is what we should call the series. Rob and Zach say to each other, I totally get what you're saying, but think of it a different way. Um, I, I totally get that you're saying these ideas are scattershot, but I do think they are cohesive at the end of the film. But that that's something we'll have to talk about because we're going to have to do a whole separate episode on the architect discussion i think that's fair to say right zach that'll be a bonus somewhere somewhere this week. i want to do an entire episode on the mtv parody with will ferrell and justin timberlake forsooth ergo <laughs> what else we say uh therefore you know that type of stuff i, I did that watch seg- that yeah <laughs> that segment like i'm pretty sure that segment is probably partially responsible to why people don't take this movie seriously oh 100 percent. that and uh, that- scary movie three of course well, George Carlin is great in and of himself. Yes, yes. Like, Will Ferrell just, like, lampoons that perfectly. And, like, because I've watched, like, the earlier parts of that with Wanda Sykes, and it's not very good. Oh, like, no, that none, whole- none of that segment is good except for the Architect parody. Absolutely. Hello. I've been waiting for you three. Who are you? Yeah, who are you? I am the Architect. But please... Call me Larry. Hey, Larry. <laughs> Larry. <laughs> I created The Matrix and several popular video games, including Cubert and Dick Duck. Remember that? Yeah, yeah. I didn't create Frogger, but I came up with the name for it. Can you believe they wanted to call it Highway Crossing Frog? <laughs> that is so lame. I know. It's the lamest thing I've ever heard of. Highway Crossing Frog. Why am I here? Yeah, why are we here? Is there an echo in here? Is there an echo in here? The MTV Movie Awards are a systemic anomaly inherent to the programming of the Matrix. Although the transport process has altered your consciousness, you irrevocably remain human. Ergo, concordantly, vis-a-vis. You know what? I have no idea what the hell I'm saying. I just thought it would make me sound cool. You haven't answered my question. I'm feeling a little vulnerable right now, so you just need to chill out. Hmm? Can you do that? I'd appreciate that. Thank you. Now, originally Neo was the chosen one to host the show, but hosting is a full-time commitment, and he's been a little distracted lately. Trinity. See what I'm talking about? That's why I brought in Sean and Justin, because you, my friend, are completely pussy-whipped. Bullshit. Watch the sass, Captain Sassy Pants. Yeah, you're kind of spazzing out, dude. You haven't answered my question. Yes, I did. You see, what You I... haven't answered my... I'm trying. You just need to let me talk. Why am I here? Ugh. Would you shut up? You won't let it happen. No, you won't let it! I'm the one who talks! Okay, mouth shut! Ears open! You haven't answered... You do not want to see me get out of this chair! Erica, open your yapper one more time and I'm gonna architect a world of pain all over your candy ass! Ergo! Vis-a-vis! Concordantly! Justin. Yeah? I apologize. 
I don't usually like to use my big voice. That's all right, dog. Just tell us how we get to the movie awards. There are two doors. The door on your left leads sissy boy here back to his bitch. Uh-huh. What up, G? You can't handle it. The door on your right leads you to the 2003 MTV Movie Awards. And the mini door is for Muffin to go out and piddle. What? Uh-uh. Uh-uh. Hey. No. You are bizarre. Thanks, Lair. Don't mention it. Oh, and hey, go host the shit out of that show. Beam. <laughs> If I were you. Bite your tongue. Bite it. I would hope that we don't meet again. Why'd you say that? I told you to shut up. I told you to shut up! And like Will Ferrell just kind of, this is before Will Ferrell blew up. I think this is even like pre old school. And it's like he just lampoons it to a degree where it's just like, oh, this is just gobbledygook. Like, okay. Concordantly! <laughs> From a distance, it's gobbledygook. Yes. To the yes. uninitiated, it's gobbledygook. And just that's the thing. The Wachowskis did not put the attention required into that. Therefore, it comes across and just it's just kind of nonsense to those who are consuming this on like the barest level. No, no, you're you're not wrong. You're not wrong. And yes, we will have to do. Uh, there'll be a whole segment about the uh, the an hour long segment about the architect speech. But Zach, we're not done with the preamble yet. You know how at the start of this movie they're talking about getting the message from the Osiris. You better believe that was played out in an animatrix segment and in a video game. So. The Animatrix, the final flight of the Osiris. I'm not only excited to talk about this, Zach, because it ties into this movie and the Matrix universe I love, but Zach, now we are finally discussing the second thing ever done by Square Films. We've finished Final Fantasy The Spirits Within. If you remember from that episode, what else did Square Films ever do before they disbanded? Well, of course, post-production on Final Fantasy X cutscenes. I don't know when we're going to get to that. But they also made The Final Flight of the Osiris. I am very... I, I did not know this until uh, we started doing these, but I actually... You can rate and review individual Animatrix segments on Letterboxd which I'm really happy about because I've been reviewing all these. I've been going through them. My review for Final Flight of the Osiris, I gave it two stars because I don't think it's that good segment, but my my written review is just the words, where the hell was Dr. Aki Ross? <laughs> 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 and she was nowhere to be seen. But Final Flight of the Osiris, I believe um, from my research, this was the one animatrix segment that played before a film. Like you actually had to yes, go to a yes. theater Rob, to Rob, see this. Describe the movie. Describe the. Tell the audience the title and describe the plot. Um, I'm pretty sure the the title of the movie is uh, "Let's Fight the Poop Monsters" and the plot is Dreamcatcher. Yes. Is that correct? Yes. <laughs> yes. Good old Stephen I, King and Lawrence Kasdan. I knew you'd want to talk a little bit about Dreamcatcher because we just mentioned it briefly. Poop that it is monsters. Yeah, th did you know that they're called shit weasels in the book? <laughs> I've never seen the movie, and I looked into it because I was like, oh, wow, I've never seen Dreamcatcher, but we've talked a lot about Lawrence Kasdan. The the characters in the book call them shit weasels. Yes. That's the stupidest thing I've ever heard. I, I Okay, my first like, – I remember, like, as a kid seeing the poster for Dreamcatcher, 
Um, I didn't know what it was. I just remember seeing it. And then remember my nephew, he either rented it from Blockbuster or his parents bought him a copy of it. And he, sh- I've always seen, I've never seen a movie in in, in, in total. Mm-hmm. I've only seen one sequence. And this, I have not seen a sequence in nearly 20 years. It's a guy like on a toilet trying to like sit on the lid so nothing pops out of the toilet. <laughs> And like he he's like trying to like sit on the lid so nothing comes out, but there's also like a toothpick on the ground that he's trying to pick up because he loves like I guess he has like an oral fixation. Okay. And he's trying to grab this toothpick while also sitting on the toilet like cover or toilet seat, and he fails. And then like at some <laughs> point, like one of the characters is like, "There's a dangler, man! There's a dangler!" No, like, like I remember, like after the Force Awakens came out, everyone was holding like Lawrence Kasdan in such high regard. And I'm like, no, this is the guy who made a movie about like poop monsters. Yep. No, yep. I don't care what he worked on, poop monsters. He should be immediately discredited for this. And from what I've read, once again, I've never read the book. I've also never read the. I've never seen the movie, so I'm with you, Zach. I've seen some scenes. I haven't seen the scene you described, but. From my research for this, the poop monsters are created because, like, lamprey eels, which are, like, the small eels that you see in museums or aquariums and stuff, go up, like, the sewer system and basically, like, mutate fecal matter? I'm, I was reading about this, and I'm like, do we need to discuss this on the podcast one day? Should I at least talk about it to reference it better? Like, is this a blind spot? <laughs> it's one of those things that we probably will delve into because it's such an absurd premise. Like, sure. It's been forgotten by like film culture but it is kind of inexplicable i could see us eventually doing like a um a series maybe like a maybe like a three episode or maybe even four if we had a a full month for it something of like you know the obscure stephen king adaptations that are just so goofy they make no sense because we could do Dreamcatcher, we could do uh the mangler with ted levine we could do finally do uh maximum overdrive with um lisa simpson you know sleepwalkers (laughs) sleepwalkers another great example absolutely okay okay when I'm editing this, I'm going to have to pop this in the spreadsheet. I like this idea. <laughs> but, Zach, yes, that was... So, Final Fight of the Osiris. A bunch of people went and saw Poop Monsters, the movie. Uh, colon, Hyper Poop Monsters, whatever it's called. Uh, to see the Final Flight of the Osiris at the start of it. And this is just like Final Fantasy of the Spirits Within. The whole beginning is this, like, blindfolded sword fight between this man and a woman... Um, we, we learn who they are eventually, you know, as we go into the second half of the story, but the whole first half is just them having this fight. They're cutting each other's clothes off with the samurai swords. The whole point of the segment is to show really, really hard what square films can do with their technology because it is, you know, as photorealistic as you can get back in the early 2000s. And, of course, it's revealed that this is a training simulation. Uh, the two people who were fighting were in there for fun, uh, for training, uh, but they are thrown out of that training program because they, of a warning sign for sentinels on their ship. And it is revealed, of course, that the two people fighting were the captain and the first mate of the Osiris, uh, the captain being Thaddeus, who gets mentioned in Enter the Matrix and I believe the movie. All these things are blending together for me now. But they find that there are thousands of sentinels around their ship. They see that there are more sentinels that than an EMP can even handle. I think there's a line about that. So they start to run. And they find Thaddeus, the captain, says, the only way we're going to be able to have any chance to get away from these sentinels is if we head to the surface, which is, of course, the desolate, destroyed cityscapes that we've seen a little bit in the first movie and we've seen in other Animatrix segments, specifically the second Renaissance. When they get up there, 
they see an army of Sentinels surrounding a, a tunneling movie, one of those boring drills. I say boring in the sense of boring through the earth, not boring as an uninspired. But they see those drills that I believe become a big part of the third movie. And they realize that the machines are making a move on Zion, so they need to send a message out. As the Sentinels start to overrun the Osiris, the first, the, uh, the first mate, the woman, she goes into the Matrix and sends a message by putting a tape in a mailbox, like a blue USPS mailbox, like one that I haven't used or seen in years because I think they might be extinct. But she gets the message out right before it's destroyed, and that is the final flight of the Osiris. Now, Zach... With you seeing this movie, and our audience, if they've seen Matrix Reloaded many times, that's a very big plot point. That's almost like the instigator for the plot of the movie, is when all of our captains meet in the Matrix, and they talk about how they have this message from the Osiris that the machines are moving on Zion. But, oh, Zach, you better believe there's some stuff between the Animatrix and the movie, and that is Enter the Matrix, the video game. Zach, I never knew if you were aware of this. I played this back in the day. I actually owned this game, and I played it. It was one of the first before, games that ever— Before or after you watched Reloaded? I think after. Oh, I hope so. I think the idea was that I fell in love with Reloaded, and then this game came out very close to when Reloaded came out. I think it was like, like the same weekend or something, and I had to have it. I— fucking loved this game i played this game so goddamn much when i was younger it's one of the things i look back on now when i sold a bunch of my ps2 games you know i kept the the classic ones like don't get me wrong i still got kingdom hearts i still got kingdom hearts 2 all that stuff my final fantasy 12 but i got rid of enter the fucking matrix i would have replayed it i would have replayed it for this episode but i didn't have it i couldn't find a good emulator in quick enough time so i ended up watching Two hours plus of cutscenes from Enter the Matrix. Many of them were the same because you can play as either Ghost or Niobe, and the cutscenes do change slightly depending on who you're playing as, but most of the story is intact. So, Zach, do you know anything about the game of Enter the Matrix at all? I know you mentioned a little, I think it might have been before we recorded. You didn't play it, is that right? I was always aware of it, never played it. Like I said, I never had PlayStation 2. Okay, so I think it's worth talking about because there's a lot of, you know, of course, PS2 cutscenes that relate to the movie, but there's also about, I think it's like 65 minutes, 65, 70 minutes of live action material written and directed by the Wachowskis. So I had to watch this as I'm being, trying to be as completionist as possible. Enter the Matrix starts with Niobe and Ghost going into the Matrix to get this message from the Osiris. The game sets up that Niobe and Thaddeus, Thaddeus being the captain of the Osiris, were really good friends. And Thaddeus never liked to use drops in the Matrix. They talk a little bit about that where it's like Thaddeus would never have put sensitive information in the Matrix unless it was really, really important. So Ghost and Niobe feel that getting this message is imperative. And so they go into the Matrix, and it seems that uh, agents are also looking for this message. And as I mentioned, at the end of the final flight of the Osiris, the message, the cartridge, is put into a uh, USPS blue box, blue mailbox. It is now at the post office. So the whole opening scene of the game is Niobean ghosts going to the post office, fighting through agents, fighting through cops, all that stuff, to get this message. And they succeed, of course. When they succeed, they transmit it back to Zion, opens up the plot hole of why wouldn't the Osiris just transmit it? Maybe they didn't have that much time because of the Sentinels. Who knows? But they, they transmit it to good old Harry Lennox, who plays what? Commander Locke in these movies. And 
He gives the word to Niobe to say, hey, we're doing full recall. You go into the Matrix, you set a meeting, and make sure everybody at that meeting, all the captains of ships that are out there in the world, they know to come back to Zion immediately. So he, so he orders total recall. This sets up in the movie why you know uh, Morpheus is not following commands, because Morpheus is the one who does not show up to that meeting until we see it happen in the movie. But to get the message out to all the captains, Niobe and Ghost have to leave them messages. And they're worried about, well, how can we do this, send all these messages and all these phone calls without raising suspicion? Because they're being tapped, they're being followed, all that stuff. They decide to go to the airport. They figure at the airport with that many different landlines, that many different telephones, it's going to be difficult to track. While they're at the airport, one of the captains they called sends them a distress signal. And the distress signal is that one of their workers, or one of the humans, Axel, has been captured by agents. And they can't let him be captured because he's going to give them the details of this big meeting that they're all having. So... In the airport, you as Niobian Ghost have to go save Axel. It's actually a really cool moment. I remember playing through this back in the day, you know, in the mid-2000s. It's really cool. you got to like, stop airplanes from taking off. you got to shut down different runways and stuff like that. I really, really love it. Uh, but, of course, they succeed. They succeed to some extent of getting Axel out. But, of course, as we know at the start of Matrix Reloaded, the agents know where this meeting's happening. So something a little wonky goes, goes there. I think we kind of learn more about that because of Bane being involved, because he's in the video game as well, but I'll get to that in due time. Okay, that was that's the first act of the video game, Zach. Any questions so far? <laughs> we have not yet reached overlap with the movie, which is when I want to branch things over. But any questions so far about the Matrix universe? <laughs> I think Zach's dead. Did you leave? What's up? <laughs> that sums up <laughs> my discussion of the Matrix universe. So, this is now where we get into more of the actual movie. So this is more of the, we're getting through the preamble, but we're getting more into the meat of the movie. There's actually a really interesting scene in the video game. After they rescue Axel, they go to a subway station to get a landline to get everybody out. Axel gets out first because he's the one who needs to leave. Ghost goes out second, and Niobe is the only one left. And as the landline, as the payphone is ringing, Niobe is actually encountered... By someone we will not see until the beginning of the third movie. The train man. The train man shows up and tells Niobe that he cannot wait to see how long Zion lasts this time. And he says that last time it lasted 72 hours. Great foreshadowing for the third movie and really this trilogy. I love that. Um, and, and it is the train man. It's good old Bruce Spence, you know, the guy who plays the train man in the third movie. It's wonderful. Then, okay, the meeting happens. The meeting that we see in the movie at the very beginning occurs in the video game. And of course, as we know, as Niobe explains the last message of the Osiris, how the machines are attacking, uh, Morpheus shows up in the movie, says all this stuff about saying, you know, hey, we need a ship left behind to contact or to see if the Oracle contacts us, all that type of stuff. Meeting gets blasted open by agents. Neo can hold some of them off, but in the video game, Niobe and Ghost are running from agents, helping others escape from them. One of the other people that they help escape is Bane, who we're going to have to talk a fucking lot about at the end of this movie. But they basically survive, you know, that type of thing. They help other people out, but they get trapped at the end. Like, they are, they're in a corner, and the agents are coming from them, and Niobe says, you know, there's a way out. We kill ourselves. Like, we can't get captured. But before they actually kill themselves, Ghost and Niobe, they're rescued by the Keymaker. 
the keymaker pulls them into one of the source code hallways and says, it's like, I'm so glad we met each other. I was able to escape the Merovingian, and now that I found humans, I need to give you the key that is meant for the one. But it turns out that the keymaker was released, you know, almost surreptitiously on purpose by Cain and Abel, two of the Merovingian's henchmen. Not the vampires that we see in the movie that are killed by Persephone, or one of them is, but werewolves that exist in the Merovingian's clan of henchmen. The whole idea that they had was to let the keymaker go, to lead them to where they could find the key for the one and capture it. There's a whole bunch of backstory in the video game about the Merovingian capturing the keymaker, that type of stuff, but I think, you know, that's going to get blended in when we talk about him in the movie. Ghost and Niobe have to go back and get the key that's originally for the one. The keymaker gets captured again because he's a useless NPC that has no strength stat at all. Uh, we'll talk about that in the freeway chase scene. But then, basically, the, the keymaker gets the key back for the one and says, I, I was wrong. I, I mistook our encounter for fate. It was chance. I need to wait for the one. So Niobe and Ghost have to run from the Merovingian. They kill a bunch of his henchmen. There is an actual cutscene you can watch on YouTube where Niobe, played by Jada Pinkett Smith, full-on makes out with Persephone. Persephone does the whole thing of the, you know, kiss me like the one you love, like she does with Neo, and she does it with Niobe, and it is very unsexual, but very interesting, just like we were talking about sex scenes earlier in the movie. And now, I think this is where we start to get in the video game stuff that starts to bleed over the movie. Of course, we talked about that opening scene and why that meeting happens, Niobe calls that meeting, but I don't want to get too far into the video game because it talks about stuff that we'll, I'm sure we'll get into in the movie, and it even has stuff that take place after Reloaded but before Revolutions, which I think is important, specifically why the Oracle is played by a different person in the third movie. So I think that's where I want to go for now. Zach, any questions about the Matrix universe up to the Matrix Reloaded? A have I laid everything out appropriately? Once again, this would be a great movie, not a half-baked <laughs> video game. Like, this all seems like compelling content that they made, like, a secondary story. I would have rather have seen any of this than watching, like, a confused Neo like like walking down a hallway after he put like a bunch of like fruit cakes and like like baked goods in front of like his like apartment, like this is this is what the movie should have been. Like this is what reload reloaded should have been, and revolution should have been an amalgamation of like what reloaded was and what revolutions is. Okay, I I know what you're saying this is I... a perfect table setting. This is compelling, interesting dialogue, uh, uh, story details. And you sprinkle enough, like, again, obviously there's no way that you can make a Matrix sequel without, like, Neo not being him uh, as the protagonist. Sure. But, like, man, like, like they should have changed some of the names, like, from, like, Niobe in, in Ghost to Neo in Trinity. <laughs> and this would have been a much more interesting story. It's almost as if they took the A story and gave that to the video game. I, um, I know what you're saying, once again, but... Neo I, does I... nothing interesting in the second film. He does literally nothing interesting, well, well, Neo, except for maybe in the last 15 minutes. Neo does the most interesting thing, I think, throughout the whole movie. He learns. I love that he learns things. He's I a, love that there's but, so much but he's not. He's not a proactive character. He's reactive to everything happening in the film. Until and that's the very the ending, end, yes. 
Well, yeah, it's the thing, and that's what makes him so interesting at the very end of the first film is that he's finally in control of everything, and that's what makes it such like a fun ending, like a really like wow, like like energy inducing ending. And then in this, he's just reacting to everything. He has no again. He's the one. He has no control over his surroundings other than just being like a quasi superhero. Okay, I'm glad you say that because doesn't that isn't that that blankness of a character uh, to to use a phrase that you know I think you mentioned or we mentioned last week the uh, the the way you were uninterested in a lot of these motivations doesn't that kind of transfer over here with him being the superhero because he's not supposed to have a personality he is a a glitch in the matrix created to love humanity. And if that's not the most bland fucking thing in the in existence, I mean, it's like he, he's basically it. he's basically Gandhi, you know? Well, he's, he's boring. He's, well, he's he's computer Jesus. Like I get that, but like they're trying to put like that. This is what I mean by like they have some great ideas, but they don't explain them properly. And that like okay, like again, I really again, Rob, like as much as you love context, like we have to start talking about the movie and not the ancillary media. Uh, I think I have been talking about the movie the whole time. I gave all the preamble. Okay. <laughs> Exactly. If you ask the Wachowskis, I've been talking about this movie the whole time. <laughs> um, but this is the thing, though, is that, like, you, you, that's the thing. Okay, I feel like I'm just repeating myself. I'm trying to figure out what different ways to say this. In that you, this movie is just – there's so many ideas that are there, but you just have to kind of, like, unravel them. Yes, I thought, which and is kind of why I love problem. it. I love having to put the work into it. Yeah, I, I know, but that's not how a movie. A movie is a passive experience. It's not. It's not like an investigative piece. <laughs> um, and that's the problem. Is like I don't. Like I said, the more and more I read stuff on these movies, it's fascinating. But like, wouldn't it have been great if the movie actually conveyed this information to us? Like, imagine like we we have all this information about like, uh, oh god, Generation Two of the Matrix, where you had like monsters and ghouls and all these weird like inexplicable things happening. Yes. And instead of actually getting to see that, and I don't mean like seeing like giant like like Van Helsing creatures floating around. I don't mean that. We just get two like confused looking extras. Like watching like a schlocky B movie as Monica Bellucci shoots them in the chest, <laughs> and I'm just like, like, it's, is that goofy fun? Yeah, if if you're like if you're like us and you're inclined to like like that sort of thing, but it's like the definition of mass appeal entertainment. This is a definitive bust. Well, as mass, I I agree with you completely. You're you're not wrong, and I, I mean, even if I didn't uh, agree agree with you there, just look at the the critical revile the the audience reactions the all that stuff to this movie there's a reason i think these matrix you know sequels as they're called two and three are are hated throughout the culture for the most but part this is, but this is but this is the difference though between like oh god in the nearly 20 years since these films have been released is that like i get mass audiences rejecting this mm -hmm. what i don't get is how in 20 years the critical intellectual circles haven't like come around to this yet being like, like, yeah. like what, what you're doing. I, like, yeah. I know what you like mean, I said, but, and that's the thing that's frustrating. There's so many crit there's so many quasi cinephiles out there that still solely look at these movies like transformers movies. Well, I'm, this brings me to a question that I, I was really putting this movie into a certain category when I rewatched it for this recording. Like I said, maybe the 20, 25th time I've seen it. But watching it with this lens, especially after doing this podcast for so long, it made me think of something. 
Yes, don't get me wrong. This is a Rob movie. I, I know a lot of people don't love it. I love that it's so dense and so convoluted and you have to unpack everything, that type of stuff. I know what you're saying, that there hasn't been this great critical revival around these movies. Uh, let's talk about Reloaded right now, the sequel. There hasn't been a great critical revival, but there's been some. I think that there's people who are now more on my side, but there's not enough to really say, like, oh, we, we overlooked this at the time. I think this movie still gets plenty of hate. But in, in your—I'm not really looking for a definitive answer here, Zach, but in your you know critical mindset of these types of movies, what you just said about this being so— um, you know, to, to paraphrase, overbloated and dense, and something that needs that unpacking. I don't. I don't think it's overbloated. I think the. the pro, I don't think these. These. Okay, I can't speak for for uh, revolutions because I haven't watched that like in years. Yes. Yeah, yeah, we're just on the but, sequel. Yeah. But in Reloaded, it's. I think it's it's the J.J. Abrams thing of like it's just the movie never slows down, lets any moment breathe. Like instead of like what should have happened is that after the Merovingian sequence. The movie should be allowed to breathe. Instead, we transition in even to a larger. We go from oh, the God, yeah, that's the right. foyer sword fight sequence to the highway sequence. And the highway sequence is great. Like that is a genuinely fun like movie moment. Oh yeah. Um. Then like right after the highway sequence, we have like a five minute breather of like oh god, the key maker, and he's explaining to them the rules of what's about to happen. It's like no. Let what just happened, all that information the audience has learned from the Merovingian, let that breathe. Let that have its moment. You got again. It's like anything in like cinema. You have your 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 hills and your valleys. You gotta go up. You gotta go down. And instead, it's just everything just flows into the next action beat. And yeah. clearly, the Wachowskis had the clout to do for the most part whatever they wanted. And I think, but I think they don't know any better. I think they are burdened. It's much like the uh, Rob's gonna hate me for saying this. They are burdened. Uh, burdened. They are burdened <laughs> with glorious purpose, and like they have all these ideas, yet they're so busy that they're like their actions are moving faster than their brains can think. Yes. In that regard, yes, and that like they're just too busy communicating what's currently on their mind. They're afraid that they might lose something else. They're just going to try to shove it all in as fast as they can before they lose track of it all. I mean, that's the thing. Like, no moment in this movie is allowed to breathe. And then you do finally get that moment with the architect, which this – god, the movie goes from like 100 miles an hour to like five, which gives <laughs> the audience whiplash. And then like as soon as that moment's over, we're back to 100 miles per hour as we have like Neo is like – like oh, good lord. He's like a, a literal hurricane yes, yes. through the cityscape trying to save Trinity and yet like all – he keeps gaining all these powers that are inexplicable, which I know is the point. Like his powers being like – Limitless is part of him being the anomaly of the contemporary, quote, one, end mm -hmm. quote. Mm -hmm. And yet the movie never gives us a moment to linger on that so the audience can process it. The movie's just chucking so much at at, its, uh, at the audience. You can't help. Okay. But just yes. like – Yes. That, and that, that's um, – you, you circle back around to my point that I wanted to make. That's exactly why I think – I am so drawn to this movie. And Russ, right now I'm talking very drawn to this movie. I love the fact that we never get a moment to breathe, and the only time that I get to think about this movie is after I've watched it as a whole. To so reference Rob, Rob, two other things, Rob, just Rob, to, I just wanted to get this out there. To put in perspective, I know you weren't here for them, Zach, but I feel that this movie is of the same, cut from the same cloth as 
Under the Silver Lake, and Southland Tales. Those are two other movies that never give you a moment to breathe, that are constantly hitting you with new information and new confusing visuals. And that that is just this, what I gravitate those, towards. But to those movie. are, but those are not. Again, The Matrix Reloaded was a new generation of blockbuster sequel entertainment. It That's was, my it was, question. Was, is this too inextricably linked to the success of the first one? than something like a Southland well, Tales or an Under the Silver I, Lake is. But that's what I mean. Like, Under the Silver Lake was never going to be a breakout success. Oh, no, not at all. Not in a no. million years. No. Southland Tales, I don't know that much context on that film, but I would imagine I, I wouldn't be wrong in putting it in the same category as Under the Silver Lake. Uh, I think I've seen the can cut seven times of Southland Tales, and I've seen the theatrical cut four times, and I think I understand so Forty-five percent of that movie. <laughs> but this is the thing, though, is that like, and this is where the Wachowskis, like, like I respect them as artists, but like as as anything else, not that I detest them, mm-hmm. but like I just I, I'm frustrated with them because like as people that are clearly as smart as them, they should have known better. They should have known when to ease off the throttle and when to lean into it. And I think it goes to show that they don't understand their craft. I don't think they do. I think it's one of those things where um, if they were smart, they should have done the George Lucas thing. And I think they did learn this, whether it be through V for Vendetta and Clad Atlas, where they should have stacked and been like, okay, we are going to be hands-on producers with the sequels. Okay, We're going to hire a David Fincher. Well, David Fincher never would have agreed to this in a million years. But they should have found their Irving Kirshner and said, like, okay, we're going to hire a talent that understands, like, like, uh, lofty philosophical ideas but knows how to effectively communicate them to mass audiences who I really don't know who that would have been in, like, the late 90s, early 2000s. Jeez, not at all. I, I don't know who that would have been at that time. Richard Kelly. <laughs> he makes no. The Matrix 2 instead of Southland Tales. <laughs> <laughs> um, but that's what I feel like they should have done, because I think they have some phenomenal ideas. They just don't know how to streamline it. See, I think- what, you, what you just said, Zach, in conjunction with what you said in our episode last week about the original Matrix... Aren't you just saying – or the things that you're saying, isn't that just going to create a more well-received movie with critics and audiences? Isn't it better that we have this fucking convoluted story that we no, got well, from them? But this is the thing, though. I think – no. I, I guess somebody who loves gonzo, weird, yeah, offbeat yeah. blockbusters, that's fine. But I think there's certain moments where I know – again, speaking of the Wachowskis, I know when to lean like away from that sort of thing. Um, like I said, like, okay, go back to my probably second favorite movie of the year, Malignant. Sure. There's there's no comprehensible version of that film. <laughs> it's just nonsense. Um, the thing about The Matrix Reload is that we know there's concrete ideas there. Yes. The problem is that they're so buried under like layers upon layers of just kind of mush. I feel like there's a fantastic story there that just needs to be kind of dug through. And that's where I'm like, the Wachowskis needed someone that would have sat there, challenged them in ways that, like, again, not to bring us back to Star Wars, but like Irving Kirshner with George Lucas, where it's sure. like it's someone like like someone they respected. Oh God, who's the guy who did Dark City and Gods of Egypt? Oh, Alex Proyas. Yeah, Alex Proyas. He would have been great for this. 
He would have been like Joel Silver. Like, it's always oh. Joel Silver should have gone to them. Whoa, whoa, whoa. listen, listen. I, I, I might need a break. I think you just hit the orgasm cake for me right there. <laughs> <laughs> but that's the thing. I think if they would have gotten somebody like that and would have been like, okay, this is again, it's the Cloud Atlas, which even Cloud Atlas I think is infinitely more streamlined than than Reloaded and Revolutions are, even though that film is convoluted in its own <laughs> sense. Um, I think it's the idea that like. The Wachowskis became so high on their own success that, like any artist, they the ultimate dream of any artist is to be on reproach. That is the ultimate goal of any artist. Sure, is to do everything unilaterally and never be have any other ideas questioned. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's the idea that like it's pressure makes diamonds, and that like it's through that collaboration and just sharing of ideas that you do get something truly amazing. And that's what I find frustrating because there are some some phenomenal ideas here. I think almost all the ideas are like home runs, but nobody forced them to refine them. I gosh, once again, yeah, I'm with you. <laughs> but that's what makes it better. Sometimes the the, the refinement of ideas. Uh, there's there's I, I don't know. That's a good question, actually, a philosophical question of you know, out of ten times. How many of those times do I want them to be unabashed, just passion projects from the mind of one person or one creative team in the sense of the Wachowskis? How, how does that compare to me wanting a well-rounded movie that has every, all the details ironed out and things like that? I don't know. I'm kind of on the fence, Zach. I don't, I don't think it's an issue of having – I said, Rob, I, well, I say it's not that I want everything explained to me on no, a silver no, platter. Sure, sure. It's I, I, mean, want, yeah. I want these bold ideas – center stage i, I don't want them buried yes. under just nonsense in like opaque nonsense like that's the yeah. thing where no, it's no, like, no 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 I, I mean, i'm totally with you and i think we've we've talked about this before i think this is another great use of the analogy that i love where zach you want to walk into a room and look at the carpet and go man this is a good carpet for this room where i want to walk into a room realize that one of the corners of the carpet is popped up and when i pop it down the other three corners pop back up i want my carpet to, to be too big for the room and i have to fight with it where i think you want the whole finish like run your hands through it don't feel any blemishes and you enjoy it well maybe there's a bump or two here you know don't get me wrong but i want i want to have to do the work of when i think i figure out one corner i've lost three other corners but but the problem though is that that's fine when you're not making the sequel to the biggest original film since like star wars ever isn't that the only time to do it go balls to the fucking walls wachowski i appreciate this movie so out there i'm not arguing their ambition i'm arguing their execution of the ambition okay sure sure that's the thing like i have no problem with any ideas in this like by all means orgasm cake (laughs) vampires ghost twins key maker architect i have no problem with any of it the problem is the execution like and i really want i guess i know rob's still jerking himself off with the context for this film (laughs) but like like going to the architect like if you like i read the architect's dialogue okay before rewatching this, I'm like, good lord, I'm getting a hard on right now. This is kind of like, I wish a it's amazing. movie would do this. It's amazing. It is. Then you watch the execution of it by the actor, and I don't blame the actor at all. I blame the Wachowskis and how they decided to shoot that scene and edit it. It just feels like almost like a glorified run-on sentence. And I'm like, this is amazing dialogue that is like unparalleled in blockbuster cinema of the early 2000s. 
never mind now. And it's like, this would have been so much better. And I'm not even saying like, I, and when I say like the actor, I mean that in the sense of like, the delivery. Not that I yeah, want yeah. Hammy. I, lo- I love that he says it deadpan. The problem is that like, it, it's one of those things. It goes back to like, um, it's the Mark Hamill thing where he like, he was in, 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 like, in the interview, not interview, in the audition for Luke Skywalker. And he sits there, goes through the entire like thing about like, like it couldn't be that bad. It'd be almost bad like on Diatribe 5 where they have this, this, this sort of defense. But if you think about it and like at the end, he's like, who the hell talks like this? <laughs> um, it's that level of conviction. Like you can spew nonsense, but you have to sell it. Whereas the actor, when he's reading, I, can, I, I forget what his name is. The actor who plays the architect. Uh, I believe it's it Hel- Helmut. But, yeah, he has but, a great Batiste, name. He has a great, Batiste, has what, I think it is. He's got to be German, right? Uh, German sorry. or Swedish? Helmut Bakaitis. That's what it is. I just found it. He's Australian. Oh. Yeah, Australian, of course. Yeah. Goddamn, as as many um, people in this movie are in these movies are. <laughs> oh god, yeah. Um, but that's the thing, though, is that like it just feels like a glorified run-on sentence. Like I have no problem with it being sold. Like I don't want like mustache twirling. I have I'm a hundred percent on board with the deadpan. The problem is it feels like the actor is literally just reading words off a piece of paper. He has no understanding of what he's saying, and what gravitas he's supposed to be imparting. And that's the thing is that like the Wachowski should have sat there been able to comprehend that. That's like, why okay, I is... love it so much, though, Zach. You saying that it's a big run-on sentence that doesn't seem to be hitting the speaker in the way that it's hitting the audience is exactly why that scene is so good and why I love a lot of this movie because, okay, I knew we are going to transition to this eventually. And, Zach, I think I, should, I think I should relay something to you. I did do a little diving into the blank check episode on this, ep- yes! on this movie because I yes! wanted to know what they were getting at. And I am kind of, I'm a little bummed. I thought this was one of my big takes of all time. It turns out that David from uh, Carte Blanche with Griffin and David, he has a lot of similar thoughts that I have. And I know I brought them up last week. I also brought them up when we discussed Tron. And I love the idea that The Matrix Reloaded is about humans dealing with the personifications of computer programs. So I know I brought it up last time, Zach the Oracle giving Neo a cookie and how that related to living in a computer program. This movie doubles down on that so hard and I love it. I just, just to give that context. Cause I, like I said, I mentioned it in our Tron episode. Um, do you remember the beginning of the original Tron when what Sark is like taking certain programs and throwing them into the games or whatever. And there's that one who's like, I'm just an accounting program, you know, that type of thing. That's pretty good. Watch this. You gotta be good. If you want to survive, what's your name? My name's Ram. Hey, Ram. What were you, you know, before? I was an actuarial program. Worked for a big insurance company. It really gives you a great feeling helping folks plan for their future needs. And of course, if you think of the payments as an annuity over the years, the cost is really quite minimal. Yeah, that's great. Actuarial program. And I said, I was like, wow, this gives me big old Matrix vibes, because that's what the Matrix sequels are about. It's about how would you deal with the personification of a computer program. And I know we're going to get to it more with um, what the, the engineering program, the security program, have the useless kid, Sati, you know, in the third movie, uh, which is also going to come up at the end of this episode because it plays into Enter the Matrix. But oh my god, do I love the fact that all of these computer programs 
Of course they don't talk like people. Of course they don't talk in the way with an affect or an emotion that we would ever expect because they are cold, calculating, created programs. While we're on the topic of the architect, because, you know, you were just bringing up that, that example, I think that it is purposeful that what he's saying is not for him. It's for Neo. It's for the audience. It's for humanity. He's saying it with such a detachment because he's had to say it, from what I would gather, at least four times before. He is there to iterate or reiterate the machinations of the one to make sure that they keep the cycle going. I think it's purposeful that it is so detached. You know what I mean? I, I don't have a problem with it being detached, though, but it has to be in a way that the audience can digest it. Well, like you have to be does, able to have your cake and eat it, too. Does it? That's the thing. Yes! In if you're this... making a movie that's there to be commercial, have commercial aspirations, which is what this was intended as. This fair. is not under the Silver Lake. In that sense, totally fair. I'm with you. From the, the perspective of just this movie, if this movie was created for nobody... Isn't this the way you do it? Because literally, the architect is only talking to Neo, and he knows that Neo is the only human that's smart enough to understand his thesaurus-like dialogue, because he's the anomaly. Well, yeah, to answer your question, yes, it exists as in The Matrix Reloaded 2003. (laughs) I don't know, I love it. I love how blunt that is. I love how the Wachowskis, with that scene, which I think... I don't know if it's blunt, I think it's just unrefined. See, that's why I don't agree with you. I don't think it's unrefined at all. I think it's blunt. I think it's it's matter-of-factly. Okay, I think okay. it's whoa, purposely whoa, whoa, whoa. confusing to some not extent. Unre- not unrefined. Unpolished. That's a better phrase because wouldn't the architect be polished in this in this notion that yes, we're talking about? That's I a think, fair point. I think okay, it comes okay. down to I have no problem with the dialogue. The dialogue is fine. It's how it's delivered. And I don't blame the actor. I blame the Wachowskis. It should be in a way because like it should be hitting more. Like I said, I have no problem with what he's saying. He's just saying it in a way where like, he's not inflecting on certain words. He's not pausing in certain yes. ways. Yes. And that's what I find. So like I said, there's, it's also cinema. It's supposed to be dramatic and, and get a rise out of your audience. Like that is the climax of the movie. That is the climax. You're right. And yet but it is dry. You're right, but he's done this so many times does, over and over. Not, the context of the scene within the movie does not matter if if it does not have any emotional resonance with the audience. That means if, if the that is the climax of the film, and if the audience does not feel it as a climax, and the scene has failed, you might have just hit the nail on the head with how we think about these movies separately. (laughs) The emotional resonance idea. I don't want any of that shit. (laughs) I don't think it's emotional resonance. It's it's just basic storytelling. Is that, like, watching or or any story, like, during a climax, you should be feeling things. And at this moment, nobody is feeling anything. Okay, well, okay, I'm glad you, you refined your own comment that way. I'm feeling everything in this scene, Zach. I'm so enthralled. I, maybe this is going to be our message or our discussion, debate for this whole three Matrix movies because we did it last week. You might feel removed or detached or unmotivated by these characters. I am so compelled by every single moment that's on screen. And I really don't know why, I guess, also. <laughs> do you feel, but do you, okay, but looking at this in basic story terms, are you, do you feel the tension of a, of the climax in that moment? I kind of do. 
Okay, there you go. The yeah. hesitancy, the hesitancy in your use of the word "kind" but of proves my point. It's kind of tough because uh-huh. Uh-huh. I've never thought about uh-huh. it this way, other than being in the moment of watching the movie, which is why I love doing this podcast and talking to you, Zach. But at the same time, I I can't remove myself from watching it on this viewing for this recording and watching it all the other times in my life. This is when I lock up. This is when the movie's happening, and I am just zoned in. Like I cannot. And did not take a single note during the architect scene because I am so wildly engrossed into what's going on, and that is something special. I think for a, on a personal that, level, on a personal level, that's that's fine. Like I said, like if somebody derives personal pleasure from this, yes. by oh, no yeah, means, of course. Let don't let my statements detract from it for you. Um, but I think there's, like I said, like I remember back. Like I said, I want to talk box office for a second to kind of just like, uh, oh god. Prove my point. Like this sure. film makes two hundred and like eighty million dollars domestically. Internationally, I think it's in the ballpark of seven hundred to eight hundred million, which in two thousand three was bonkers. Yep, that's what I read. Yeah, like yeah. that is an insane amount of money for two thousand three for an R rated film. From, from what I read, this is the highest grossing of the trilogy. I believe. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Okay. Um, the coattail aspect, which you talked about, of course. Oh yeah, and plus the hype machine was there for yep. four years. Like yep. it, it had a good marketing campaign. Um, uh, everybody like, saw Dreamcatcher, of course. <laughs> <laughs> well, like I said, like, regardless of the quality of Enter the Matrix and the Animatrix, it got people hyped. Um, I can still remember, like when my uncle was getting. I think I mentioned this last week when he was getting like bootleg copies of movies. Like, oh, do you yeah. want the Animatrix? And I'm like, what? And I'm like, can't you just buy that as a regular DVD? <laughs> I'm like, why would I want a bootleg of something I could literally just like walk into a store and buy is that gonna be um, on adult swim tomorrow oh no no sorry sorry back in the early 2000s is that gonna be on toonami tomorrow <laughs> yes, yes, um but no but the point being is that like if you look at the grosses like this thing does the reloaded like 280 domestic 700 and change internationally sure and then god what six months later revolutions comes out and it literally cuts those totals in half revolutions is uh, revolutions is a, nearly revolutions a bomb is, right i would say it's it's as close to a bomb as you can get without saying the b word um it's it's I <laughs> was mean, it like, an emp can we say that <laughs> yeah um i can we imagine what the headlines would be today if we uh, had those sort of like puns in the entertainment industry <laughs> uh no like i said like i think that's the thing i think like we talk about like like more when it comes to like star wars like the idea like how much did certain films impact the subsequent installments and with this like the writing is so clearly on the wall sure uh i mean just like like audiences wanted nothing to do with revolutions after this like there's not even the like morbid curiosity aspect. Like basically a like guy, I think it's like anywhere from like 140 to 150 million dollars in ticket sales just evaporated yep, in six yep. months. Yeah. Um. Internationally too, like it, it's it was pretty close to that. I don't think it was half, but like we're talking about easily a 40 percent drop. Um. And I think that's the reason why that like Warner Brothers was so reluctant to go back to this because I think they know the 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 uh. Oh God! What would you call? It? Oh God! What's the word for it? The well. The well is. Poison. Oh, oh, sure. Okay, okay. I know. Yeah. Okay, um, I get what you're saying. I, I think yeah. they're aware of that because, like, like that's the thing. Is is this like the Matrix is such an influential film, 
and Reloaded and Revolutions are a perfect example of just filmmaker hubris. Yeah, and I think we we even got into this a little bit last week, if I remember correctly, where you know we were saying there's a reason that Keanu Reeves looks exactly like John Wick in the new trailer. There's a very specific reason for that. Well, yeah, they're trying. Like I guess, and that's the thing. Like I, I would, I'm very confident in saying that if it weren't for the fact that Keanu Reeves is going through what, like a second or third renaissance in his career, oh, God, probably fourth uh, at this point. Yeah, yeah right. <laughs> lose track after a while. He's been around forever. Um, if it weren't for his like John Wick renaissance, I think there's a very real possibility this film wouldn't exist. I, I honestly completely agree. Absolutely. That is that is. I think you just hit. I don't. I don't think we said that last week. But that is. You are absolutely fucking right about that, man. <laughs> and that's. And but that's the thing that's so weird. Because like I said, like definitely, like as we're recording this, Resurrections is about a month out. Yeah, a little, um, but, little more, but yeah, give or take. And and it's the idea. Like it's November third, Zach. It's coming on December twenty second. What do you mean, give or take? Give or take. Ever, three Rob. weeks, six weeks, <laughs> six weeks versus four. Rob. Zach's like it's a month. Give or take three weeks. <laughs> Before you know it, Rob, it's going to be 2022. Um, yeah, okay, okay, wow. I'm sorry. Don't remind me. I'm very upset about that. <laughs> oh, God. But no, I, I think it's, and like I said, apparently the entire plot for the fourth film is on internet because there was a test screening yeah. like a year ago. We mentioned that last like, week, yeah. Oh, yeah. We've, last week we've mentioned the plot of this film, I think, countless times in the last year. <laughs> um, I'm trying to it, keep it, everything in order for Cinemodity Sec. I'm doing my damn best. <laughs> but I we've think, recorded well, I, Jupiter Ascending six years ago <laughs> I, but i think it's that idea that like the with like at least lana we can't speak to lily mm-hmm. has has not learned anything from the follies of their filmography well i kind of love that fact and can't wait to see what happens but that's the thing though like i want but that's the thing though rob i want resurrections to succeed in a blockbuster sense because i want people then to be like it's the disney plus thing is that like Warner Brothers is making this not because they they have any interest in telling a fourth chapter in the Matrix franchise? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. It's because they know it will cause like subscriber boost on HBO Max with people yes. wanting to watch these films. Like, oh, like how much is a rental for? I don't know the Matrix trilogy, fifteen dollars. Well, for that price, I can get HBO Max for a month. Like, that's the mm-hmm. thing. Like, it's the reason why, like, Disney keeps making these series. They're not making these series because they want to tell stories. They're doing it because they'll know it'll force people to sign up for a membership where they'll go watch other stuff while they're there. Yeah, Impractical and- Jokers. <laughs> yes, Impractical Jokers. But that's the thing. I'm going to try want- my damnedest to mention that every every episode we do on The Matrix because I know I didn't mention pretty, it Jupiter Ascending, so... <laughs> I'm pretty sure if you say Impractical Jokers five times, uh, one of the guys like comes out of the mirror. <laughs> and is incredibly racist to me? I'll take it. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's that, the thing, I, I love everything wait, you're saying. Wait, and wait, I, okay, yeah. Wait. But the thing about it is, like, I, I want Resurrections to succeed as a conventional blockbuster, mm-hmm. as in just like normal, like, making money going through the cycles of it being labeled a hit. So people will then go back to two and three and it'll have that moment of reevaluation in the culture. Ah. I want two and three to have that moment that the star Wars prequels had where people like people sat there, got like, like watched the clone wars, watched rebels that all fed, like that all came from the prequels and then went back to these films, revisited them like X amount of years later. It was like, Oh, Instead of getting caught up in the hype that the media was feeding us, let's reevaluate these as individuals that will then be coalesced together as the culture. Mm, well, and okay. that's what I 
that's what I want. Revol- I, I, that's where I hope Lana in the studio like meet in that middle ground where they make a film that is I guess I don't want something you know like we've talked about it in the pre-show recording like the worst type of blockbuster is vanilla yes but and like I said as somebody who loves nonsense movies whether it be Mortal Engines or Malignant I love nonsense but like I want this to succeed as a competently good movie so then people will be like huh maybe I did misjudge those Matrix sequels that's a fair that's point that's what I want that's a fair I guess point. I don't, yeah. I don't. I guess it, Revolutions has always been my favorite. And I, even like watching this, like certain moments of that kind of like flooded back into like my consciousness. And I was just like, oh yeah, like like Mofuni, the giant yep. drill, yep. um, Link's wife, and her entire like thing with the like the uh, the woman with like the buzz cut, like just like blowing up stuff with like a giant rocket launcher. Mm-hmm. Like I, I remember that, and that's the thing. Like I think like the Matrix sequels have never had that moment in the culture. Because nothing has really been done with the Matrix sequels outside of what? The, oh god, Path of Neo? The Path of Neo and the MMO game, um, and that's Jesus. Jesus, the MMO, that was like a flash in the pan to call it, to call it, that would be like, uh, generous. I have nothing to say about the MMO right now. Tune in next week because I, I, I have a lot to say about the MMO, the research I've done and how it ties into the fourth movie. So that's next week's topic. Well, yes, yes, yeah, 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 we'll get to that. Um, I've heard that too. But it's that idea that these films, like, after like November 2003, were pretty much like, like, left adrift. And that's yeah, the thing. Yeah, you're you're not. These once films again, you're not never, wrong. Yeah, these films have never had a moment of resurgence since 2003. Outside of the first film, sequel. We're talking exclusively the sequels sure, here. Sure, sure. Two and three outside. But this is the thing, though. This is where I want to talk about the architect sequence. I remember telling Rob this like a few months ago when like the Loki Disney Plus. Oh, thing okay, okay. Out. I you asked oh. me to cue this up for you earlier, so I wrote it down. I I want to just say. Because I have the entirety of the architect scene in my notes. Please want, don't, please don't say it. Please don't read it out. Please, I don't wanna, just, I'm not going to read all of it. I don't want to read. All of it. I want to read my favorite segment from it, which I think ties into what we're going to talk more about the architect. Okay, okay. Thank you. It's near the beginning. Neo says, "Why am I here?" And the architect says, "Your life is the sum of a remainder of an unbalanced equation intent to the programming of the matrix. You are the eventuality of an anomaly, which, despite my sincerest efforts, I have been unable to eliminate from what is otherwise a harmony of mathematical precision. While it remains a burden assiduously avoided, it is not unexpected, and thus not beyond a measure of control, which has led you, inexorably, here. I fucking love that! That paragraph is so good! But I just wanted to say that. Zach, you sold that. You sold that delivery better than the actor did. I, I, I know. I realized when I when I put a little too much, you know, spice on assiduously. I was like, I went too emotive for the architect. I need to work on that. Your life is the sum of a remainder of an unbalanced equation inherent to the programming of the matrix. You are the eventuality of an anomaly, which, despite my sincerest efforts, I have been unable to eliminate from what is otherwise a harmony of mathematical precision. While it remains a burden assiduously avoided, it is not unexpected and thus not beyond a measure of control, which has led you inexorably here. But I love that segment when he says, you are the eventuality of an anomaly, which despite my sincerest efforts, I have been unable to eliminate 
from what is otherwise a harmony of mathematical precision. I think that one sentence sets up the entirety of the climax of the third movie so fucking perfectly. But we can talk about that next week. Zach, you wanted me to cue you up if you did not remember this fucking Marvel Loki thing. What is this? Because I'm unaware of it. <laughs> okay. The getting to Rob, like Rob just said, yeah. I, like I said, architect sequence is great I, in the sense of like it's a concept. It's great. Also, can we, like it, can we say, is this the most ambitious thing in a movie period like this is a big it's, ambitious scene right it's in, ugh, that's the thing like it, it would it, yes on paper it's ambitious the problem is it doesn't like it doesn't stick the landing God. it's ambitious and it strikes out it sticks the landing so hard for me it throws me off the diving board i have to say <laughs> <laughs> but please please I, I know we're going to talk more about the architect and stuff like that, that. Might have been the most profound um, way to describe that <laughs> thank you like Zach. honestly like I, I perfect like i can't disagree <laughs> Um, but what is this Loki? Because you said before we started recording, remind which, remind spoilers. Zach to talk about architect moment in season finale of Loki. What the fuck does that mean? <laughs> okay, spoiler alert for Loki. Spoiler alert for all your stupid Marvel nonsense, everybody. Yeah, nobody cares. Um, Harry Styles is Thanos' brother. Spoiler alert. Um, it's, really? Okay. Yeah. Thank God I'm not watching this shit. <laughs> Did I say Loki or Thanos' brother? You said Thanos. Is it Loki? Okay, or... good. Oh, it's Thanos? Thanos. Okay, yeah. Thanos. That's, yeah, right. that's, that's, that, is, that is the weirder option of the two. <laughs> yes. So what happens is that, like, all throughout, like, Loki, you have, like, female Loki that you can't call her that. She's Sylvie. And, like, it's like, oh, we're going to go to, like, the like, like talk to the masters of the universe and have them, like, fix our problem. Okay. He-Man. Um, okay, cool. Yeah. It, it's, it's one of those. It, it's, it's one of those. <laughs> And um, at the, they go to, like, the edge of time, and there's this guy at, like – I forget the actor's name. He, he's going to be Kang the Conqueror. Okay. Um, actor does a really good job. Like I said, I, I'm going to look up his name right now. Um, it's um, not it, Owen Wilson, right? It's not Owen okay, Wilson. Because he plays Owen Morbius Wilson. and Morbius. What does the M stand for? Morbius. <laughs> or Mobius. He's kind of – Mobius, he's not kind, Morbius. Morbius like, is Jared Leto. <laughs> If it weren't for the fact that the internet has a weird, like, hard-on for Owen Wilson right now, he'd probably be, I think, undeniably one of the worst aspects of that show because he's just doing the Owen Wilson thing of, wow, Loki. Like, like, like he's doing that. He's, he leans into that very, very hard. Gotta say, um, he is my least favorite part of the French Dispatch. He plays the um, the cycling journalist for the first, very first segment. He's not that great, which is bummer. Because Wes Anderson and the Wilson brothers have been friends for years, and they used to get really good performances. You know, look at Bottle Rocket. He didn't. He didn't really hit the nail on the head for me. This Wes Anderson movie. Zach, your comments. <laughs> well, Wes Anderson and, and Owen Wilson have been together for a while now, yeah. right? Yeah, they um they uh, were like roommates in college. I think I think the story is what both of them. It was the two Wilson brothers and Wes Anderson lived on Albert Brooks's couch while writing Bottle Rocket. I think that's the story. They, yeah, they've been around since the eighties together. Yeah. And it's very, yeah. very, very telling. If, if anybody remembers, you know, Owen Wilson actually did try to kill himself, after which Wes Anderson wrote Luke Wilson trying to kill himself into the Royal Tenenbaums. It's a very depressing fact. <laughs> okay, then. Um... So let's talk about the French Dispatch for another 30 minutes. No, I'm, I'm sorry, Zach. Please continue. <laughs> um, Movie was good. Okay, the actor's, the actor's name is Jonathan Majors. Okay. Uh um, but what happens like throughout the entire show, we're like, like we, we keep building and building to this idea of like the man behind the curtain and we get 
oh god, what's his name in the TV show? Like it's he's he's a different version of Kang the Conqueror if you know your Marvel comics. Gotcha. And like he has like like Loki, Sylvie, and him like have this like oh god, he's sitting at a table talking to them. And it's essentially Neo and the Architect, where he's like, okay, like everything that you've been doing has led you here because I've designed this. This is part of the plan, and I'm giving you a choice. You can kill me and chaos will erupt, or you can let me be and we can keep the fragile piece together where people suffer. And that's essentially what happens, spoiler alert, is like Loki's like, no, like we, we have to keep things constant. And female Loki, Sylvie's like, no, like no suffering should be tolerated. And she kills him. And his final words are like, let like let the madness begin. Ergo, is, forsooth, concordantly. <laughs> yes, it, but that's what it is, though. Like, I mean, like, it's possibly even more drawn out than the architect sequence from Matrix Reloaded. But I think it just goes to show, like, even though I think in the culture clearly agrees with this assessment that the architect sequence is a wet fart, it still is maybe the most impactful or, like, sequence or scene in the movie that resonates that was almost unanimously rejected by mass audiences. Yes. I cannot think of another moment in blockbuster cinema that has been so unanimously rejected yet part of the cultural fabric of media. (laughs) You're absolutely right with how much has been parodied and how much you can like, like literally, honestly, I could probably go to somebody's place, like one of my friend's places and apropos of nothing, go like, you know, ergo concordantly forsooth, you are here because you love a human and not humanity. And they're going to go, oh, that's that Matrix thing, right? They might not know exactly what scene it is, but they're going to know what I'm referencing. That is wild. That is that culturally pervas- pervasive, yet, <laughs> you know, derided and made fun of so consistently. Yeah, I guess it. I think that's like the strange thing about these movies that these moment these movies have never had their moment of like, like I said, uh, reappraisal. Yes, yes, absolutely. And yet they still kind of bleed into the consciousness, like in a way that like is almost unheard of. I cannot think of another film that was like. I, but that's the weird thing about the Matrix Reloaded is that, like the Matrix Reloaded got good reviews in two thousand three. Yes. Um, this this was not like a Batman v Superman where like it was immediately discarded. From what it's I read, somehow... if anything, critics at the time said, "Wow, the Wachowskis went even more into the action, and that's uh, that's obfuscating their heavy themes even more than in the first movie." Well, I think I think a lot of that's just watching it on a first viewing. Like on a first viewing, it's the shock and awe. Oh, like when you okay. fair, after fair. watching the thing about Rob, like if you're coming out of this movie in the summer of 2003, you're not talking about the intricacies of different layers of the Matrix. Dude, that freeway action scene goes on for like a solid 17 minutes, and it's kind of <laughs> overwhelming. <laughs> yes, and I think that's the thing. I think just the sensory overload numbs you to the philosophical like underpinnings of this all um and that's why i think like people's like i think this was a movie that people went to numerous times because they wanted to re-experience it with people and it was like okay like i said and this is where it goes back to the culture too i think most people who love the matrix and like from 1999 to 2003 just love the spectacle of it and really didn't think too much about it and then i think and i guess this is where like where the Star Wars prequels, I think it was unwarranted, but with the Matrix sequels, it kind of got what it deserved. Um, to be fair, the Matrix sequels, I don't think were as despised as the Star Wars prequels were in the late 90s, early 2000s. Sure. Um, 
the, the Matrix sequels were always looked down upon, but they never were like reviled and considered like the the, the scourge of the earth. Yeah, yeah. Um, but but I think it was the idea that like dummies latched onto the Matrix as it was very similar to like what happened with Inception in 2010. Nobody cared about the point of the movie. Yeah, they're just like, oh, Joseph Gordon-Levitt's like running around like a room that can move. Like we we, we talked about this last week about how I think we both agreed at the end of that discussion that you know a lot of people took the wrong message from the Matrix, and I we also said that we think the Wachowskis saw that the Matrix was successful for the wrong reasons, which directly leads into constructing a movie this dense. Well, that's. But this is but this is the thing though is that like this is where I don't know if I can blame the Wachowskis because it's like the audience claims they got the meaning of the first film which I don't think they did. Yes, claims is the is the imperative word there, absolutely. And that's where it's like okay, like like you were saying, Rob, like if you dig into this enough, there's a lot to appreciate, but clearly all, the people who love the first film did not. They mm-hmm. refused to dig into this. Yep, yep. Which which but again, it also begs to ask is this another prequel situation where you have a film that's financially successful yet oh god the media tainted the narrative i'm I'm glad you said media because you know in the current era that we live in of course me you know in both the star wars prequel era and the matrix sequel era i was a young kid i was not on the internet that much do you think these movies let's let's actually lump them all together the star wars prequels and the matrix sequels do you think these get hate because of the snowball from media and internet discourse? Oh, 100%. Right? It has to be. And I think that uh, that's why it's so difficult to fight against. When I go to you right now in this discussion, Zach, or I go to anybody else and tell them, hey, we're doing Matrix movies on the podcast. I got to watch them all. And I'll hear people go, man, I love that first one, but those other two, those are kind of lame. And it's like, no, 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 no. I, I-, I love those for X, Y, Z reasons. And they're going to go... Yeah, I don't know. I don't really remember him that well. So has internet discourse convinced people that they're remembering how they think about movies from the pre-internet era? Does that make sense? Well, I don't even think it's pre-internet era. I well, think maybe it's not like pre-internet. These, you know what I mean, I, like I, proto-internet. I, th- yeah. I think it's the idea that like we see it, – it's the BuzzFeed listicle syndrome. Yes, yeah. Okay, thank where, you. Yes, yes. Like it's like, like someone will be scrolling through a Facebook something – and they'll see like an article that's not even meant to be clicked on because if you click on it, it won't even bring you to anything. There'll just be a million pop-up ads. <laughs> yeah. And it'll be like like ten reasons why the Matrix sequels were disappointing. And that sort of it's like sub it's like subliminal oh god, like thought coaching. Let me ask you this in, in response to what you just said, because I agree with you. I've seen those articles, I've read some of them, not just in preparation for this recording, but throughout my life, and I've disagreed with them. Do you think this is another example of the hive mind of the internet, a la Shrek? Oh, yeah. Nobody likes Shrek, but the internet keeps telling well, them to like it. <clears throat> Nobody so has a thought on the Matrix sequels. The internet just keeps telling us to feel a certain way about them. Well, that's how the internet works for everything. Though. Yeah, like, yeah. The internet's so broad at this point on every single uh, topic ever. It's just anything that has the like, God who has equal... Oh, God, attention span for people plus one will automatically be majority. I have my fingers, like my thumb and my index finger in the corners of my eyes. I'm so, I hate whenever we bring up BuzzFeed. Zach, would you, what do you think about this? Maybe we start like our own type of Cinemonides BuzzFeed, but it's positive. I hate how negative BuzzFeed is. It's like, ten things you forgot that sucked about this movie, you know, that type of, or... 
10 misogynistic things in Batman Returns, you know, that type of stuff. Can we just make, like, a BuzzFeed article that goes, like, 10 things you should love about... Like, can we have some positivity on the internet, you know what I mean? Or, Zach, if you want to meet somewhere in the middle between positivity and negativity, can we make a movie, or, sorry, a YouTube video that's something like, 5 things you never noticed about The Matrix Reloaded? And then the first fact is, like, this movie is 2 hours, 16 minutes, and 54 seconds long. Bet you never checked that timestamp on HBO Max. Like, what do we do? Are we, do we be that stupid, or do we actually try and give positivity to the internet? I'm very upset I, about BuzzFeed in general. I'm not blaming BuzzFeed specifically, but I think it's just the culture we live in. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Whereas, like, I think, like, it, it's, what's the adage? If you repeat a lie long enough, like, it becomes fact. Yes. You, uh, I know I've experienced it when, um, the few times that, uh, you know, I've actually gotten to be on the Knights of Vader podcast with Zanger. He's told me how he's like, yeah, I went down the rabbit hole of five things you didn't know about this lightsaber. And the first one is like, it's blue. And it's just like, Zanger's like, why the fuck did I click on this? And I think <laughs> that's what everybody says when they sit down for a 10 minute video about five things you never knew about X, Y, and Z. And the first fact is the most basic thing you've ever heard about, you know? It's like, oh God, it drives me crazy. I know that's not that actually might be part of the Matrix. The Matrix in the real world is starting with BuzzFeed listicles. <laughs> and we're all well, subscribing to them. <laughs> but that's but this is where you get into this weird thing of like the chicken or chicken or the egg. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Because it's like, again, I, I think that not that the Matrix deserves to be hated. I don't think that's the case. But I do think it's muddled. I do think that this is not again, like, like you can have like blockbuster cinema that conveys lofty notions. Yes. Yes. That that doesn't have to be spoon fed to the audience and it doesn't have to be as opaque as the Matrix sequels are. Great example. Um, David Fincher movies. I think Social Network and Zodiac get a lot of heavy notions about the well, the spread of information and they don't need to be obfuscated in the way that the Wachowski do it behind this wall of sci fi. Absolutely. Well yeah, I, I guess I, I think there are movies that are able to sit there communicate things to the audience without sitting there doing it above or below the audience's head. Sure, sure. Um but I think like the, but we also live in a world where there's so much stuff and so much and a little and everything now has its 15 minutes of fame. Like we were even talking in the pre-show about like the Eternals and like mm-hmm. how the consensus is like oh this is a very vanilla, bland, uninspired film. And it's like well that's like um, unless the film is the exact opposite of that and the critics were just delusional. Yeah, yeah. that's even if the film is nothing short of a masterpiece. That's the narrative that's going to surround this film forever. Oh, 100%. You're right there. You're like, absolutely it's, right it, there. It's going gonna, it's gonna to surround the film forever, um, for better or worse, even if the film is infinitely better than that. Um, it's like the Dave Chappelle Netflix special. Like, I don't, like, 30 years from now, this, that special will be known as the one where, like, a bunch of people, like, walked off the job and or got fired. Yes. Even though that is a very, clouded like summary of what happened during those like few weeks yeah yeah Um, i think and like i said that's where i really hope resurrections is i I guess i I don't even know what baseline is for the wachowskis (laughs) i don't know what baseline is for them though i just hope they tell a coherent intellectually lofty film i understand where you're coming from zach i hope they tell the most convoluted shit i've ever seen (laughs) but but rob do you really want to film another film that's gonna fall on its fate do you really want another cloud atlas that just completely just 
tarnishes their legacy even further. In a, in, a, in a grand scale of what it means for movies, I know where you're coming from, Zach, but if they make another movie that I love as much as Cloud Atlas, you better fucking believe I want that. But isn't that, but isn't that selfish, though? Yes! 100%! That's why, that's why I did an episode on Southland Tales on this podcast, screamed at my co-host for two and a half hours, and I'm still saying to this day, I want to do the other version on the podcast. Yes, I am very selfish with my narrative, Zach. I, but I know thing, where like, you're coming from, but I think that's where we fundamentally disagree on some of our movie reviews. If, if this new Matrix comes out and it's a huge success and it's good, don't get me wrong. I'm going to be all about that. But if it is convoluted and hated and I'm the only one defending it to people, I'm also going to enjoy that as well because I kind of thrive in that mode these days. This all comes down to like an intellectual exercise in wishful thinking. Yes. That's a great way to put it. (laughs) In wishful thinking, yeah. (laughs) And and that's what this is. Like I would take not a bland Matrix 4 but just something that like allow – again, it's that foot in the door. Is that like, okay, you, you get The Force Awakens so you can get a more lofty sequel further down the road. Mm, okay, I know what you're saying. It, like, like I said, like, if, if, if Lana makes another convoluted, just like opaque film, ah. that's it. It that's might, it. yeah, yeah. You, what you're Clout, saying is that it might be the is, end of the line. That's the last one we ever get. Yeah, cashing the blank check in that, like, it's again, it's like the idea of the Force Awakens. Like, as much as I deride the Force Awakens, it goes back to the thing I've been saying ever since 20 God 17. It's the Beatles reunion tour, like conundrum. Yeah, and like, let's just pretend for the sake of argument, George Harrison and John Lennon are still alive. If the Beatles were ever able to reunite, no one would expect them to play new music. George Harrison's dead? <laughs> no, I know, I, know, I, know you mean, I know what you mean. Um, and that, but I, I, and I get it. That's like, and that's the conundrum. Like, as much as I hate Jurassic World, as much as I hate The Force Awakens, is it like, it's the logical step to take. You're right. You're right. You need that. Like, there's a reason why when you, when you pour the foundation for a house, you don't go with something experimental. You go with what you know works. <laughs> then you get more ambitious and creative with each layer. That is fair. Um, that is and, fair. and that's where, like I said, and that's why with like Resurrections, like, like I'm a little scared. Um, I've deliberately like gone out of my way. Anytime I like see anything about that film, I like outside of like official marketing, um, which is deliberately obtuse because yes, it's yes. It, it's because I, I I don't know based on the trailers I have no idea what the hell's happening. Oh in this yeah, next the year. trailer. I mean, Zach and I before the recording we talked about how we both got to see it in a theater before uh, whatever other movies we were seeing, and and the trailer is fun. Don't get me wrong. Like I I know I told you Zach, and I think we mentioned it last week that that one shot of Neo waving his hands and it diverts the rocket. I'm just like fuck me. I'm that I'm on board. That's so cool. But the rest of the trailer is literally the one pill makes you take pills, take pills, take pills. You know that type of thing and it's like oh god like is is this a little too derivative or contrived what's so weird about that for about that matrix trailer is it like i don't know who it's for <laughs> that's a good point it's for fans because, of neil patrick harris that's what i've gathered <laughs> I, I hope so because it's the it's that notion of anybody who has nostalgia for the matrix is clouded by some narrative around the idea that quote the sequels Absolutely. are bad yep 
anybody who has no familiarity with this franchise has no idea what's happening period and i'm pretty sure we talked about that last week the um their their reasoning to be so ambiguous or reserved in the trailer we were talking about how well do we think it's because of that connection to these sequels and things like that um we didn't really come up with a good answer but we if you if you have no if you have no connection with the matrix for for better or worse that trailer does not get you into a theater oh no not at all it just doesn't if you have no matrix that trailer is solely there for this it's for nostalgia absolutely yep Mm -hmm. and or keanu reeves fans uh yes looking like john wick absolutely yeah because who else nobody's carrie ann moss as much as i love carrie ann moss and i love her in these movies i love her probably even more in memento that might be her performance is her in memento she's not taking anybody into seats Nobody knows who she is. You know what the last thing she was in? This fucking Daredevil show on Netflix, the Marvel thing. She was a lawyer. She had like two scenes. And when she showed up when I was watching them, I was like, hey, it's Carrie Ann Moss. It's Trinity from The Matrix. It's, um... It's that woman, evil woman from Memento, you know, that type of thing. And everyone I was watching it with was like... Who? And I'm like, I'm like, what? I'm, so yeah, she's not drawing anybody into seats. You know who would have drawn people into seats? Lawrence Fishburne. Don't get him. You know what they should be pushing in the in the marketing for the new Matrix movie? The Merovingian. <laughs> Orgasm cake. He should be everywhere. So with that all being said, Zach, can can we get back to some characters and and sure. talking about I think we talked everything about the architect that we wanted. Were there any other architect moments you wanted to talk about or anything like that? It's only really one moment with the architect, yeah, it's but a very uh, long, long moment, yes. But I, I think I'll bring that up when I talk about what I think this the theme of this movie is. But there's another character that we got to talk about probably my favorite character in the trilogy good old agent smith he's not an agent anymore he's just smith i quoted him at the start of this episode i wanted to point this out because i think this is a great little tiny cinematic detail that uh you might not get from other other podcasts or other reviews or anything like that when agent smith sorry smith he's not agent anymore he's unplugged we know that from the beginning of the movie when he drops off his little ear device to Neo at the very start of the movie, there's a shot when he pulls up to the the secret meeting location. Um, you know, when Niobe calls the meeting to talk about the, the final transmission from the Osiris that I already described. His license plate is IS-5416. The passage Isaiah 40, 5416 from the Bible states, quote, Behold. I have created the smith that bloweth the coals in the fire, and that bringeth forth an instrument for his work, and I have created the waster to destroy. I know I set it up last week, Zach. I love Agent Smith's, when he is an agent, his speech and monologue to Morpheus, talking about how he has been infected by the humans, and he feels that he needs to do what the humans have done and, ha- and has to escape this matrix. I love the follow-up in this movie. I love that Agent Smith has become a glorified computer virus. One, I want to talk about why he wasn't deleted. Because as I mentioned in my quote at the start of the movie, you know, he says, "When, when I was destroyed, I understood the rules. I knew what I was supposed to do, but I didn't. I couldn't. I was compelled to stay. I was compelled to disobey. This monologue comes right after the Oracle discussing the exile of programs from earlier iterations of the Matrix, which is going to play a huge role, what I want to talk about too, but just on Smith. I kind of love the idea that corruption exists in the intrinsic heart of this computer program. And everybody hearing this, you might be saying, Rob, 
isn't that kind of contradictory to everything you've ever said about a robot? Like, if a robot is programmed to do a certain thing, shouldn't it always do that thing? My answer is yes, it should. When it exists. There is a great notion of, well, what happens to programs when they are deleted? Do they gain some scent, a sense of sentience, like the Merovingian, like the werewolves, like the twins, like the vampires, all that stuff in the Merovingian's exile compound? But I love the fact that we get this idea, something that I had truly never thought of before watching this movie, for all intents and purposes, at the end of the first movie, Neo puts Agent Smith in the trash can and deletes him. Like, I'm not talking just move him to trash. I'm talking move him to trash and empty the recycle bin. If anybody has ever done anything with computers and really worked with the nitty-gritty of them, that does not mean it is gone. You can recover things from the trash can. And I, after they've been deleted. And I love the idea that through some really quick notion, which I can dive into if you want me to, Zach, I think that somebody failed to defragment the Matrix after the first movie, allowing Agent Smith to have such a choice to make sure that he can come back as a corrupt virus rather than being removed from all of the program, of the entity that is the Matrix. What do you think about Agent Smith coming back in this movie? Because, and I hate to say it, I did listen to the part in their Matrix Reloaded episode, good old carte blanche. They don't like this, if I remember correctly. They said, this is a bad idea, shouldn't we have a new villain? I kind of fucking love the fact that a program and Neo, the one, are so inextricably linked after the events of that first movie. What do you think, Zach? Uh, No, I don't... It's it's an interesting idea because I know they delve into more of like Agent Smith's role in the third film, like the idea of the equation trying to balance itself out. Yes. yes. Um, no, like, like I said, I. It's hard to talk about him in this movie, like is it like an exclusive entity because he is the primary antagonist in the third film. Yes. Um, we haven't even mentioned Bane. Oh, good God, we haven't mentioned Bane yet. We'll get there. Don't worry, don't worry. I want want to specifically talk about the end of this movie, the last shot, for like a solid 15 minutes, because it is wild. (laughs) Yeah, the the ending of this movie might be the most, like, audacious cliffhanger in cinematic history. My only problem now on rewatching the end of this movie and knowing the Matrix lore as well as I do, I wish when they pan up from Neo in the in the med bay to Bane in the med bay, that Bane was giving the middle finger to the camera. That is the only way to make it better. Go, fuck you, audience! I was oh, in the God, movie for that. 40 seconds before this scene. <laughs> That's, I remember, like, sitting through this, like, opening, like, opening showing, and just being like, like, as a 10-year-old, what? <laughs> yeah, yeah! I did it the first time I watched the movie, but I had the, uh, the, uh, the lucky circumstances of knowing there was an earlier one and not watching it and thinking that would be explained to me. <laughs> yeah, the Bane thing's amazing. But, no, getting back to Agent Smith, no, I think everything about him works in this. It's just, once again, I, it's weird that so much in this movie is explained, yet so many other things are guarded. And I think Smith is kind of, like, so... It's not undercooked. It's there. Like, the idea makes sense. It's just not given enough time to breathe. Do we need the Smith stuff to breathe, though? And I know what you mean, kind of. It's like, yeah, maybe, you know, different filmmakers would have put in a moment where you have somebody explaining what happened to Smith. 
isn't it kind of great that Smith's Smith's existence in this movie and the third one, they're never really explained. It just becomes, I was deleted, I chose not to be deleted, and now I am a virus. Isn't that what a computer virus should be? Like, you never really know where you got it from. You never really know why it exists, that type of thing, especially well, in a closed simulation. One... Sorry, simulacrum that is the Matrix. No, I, but I think you I think you explained it in two sentences better than the entire, like, sequel <laughs> films do. That's kind of fair, yeah. <laughs> and that's the thing. Like, the movie treats everything like it has to be... Again, like everything is the Russian nesting dolls. Every single plot beat has to be just something inside something that's inside something else. Um, everything has to be unraveled, and it's like no. Sometimes a spade can be a spade. Um, I, I'm, I'm you can so be glad straightforward you, with your audience sometimes. Yes, I'm so glad you actually say that because part of Smith's speech that I don't. I did not quote at the start of this episode. I quoted his very beginning, which I love. I love when Neo and Smith reunite, you know, in the uh, right before the CGI vomit brawl that ensues for, I think, six hours. That's how long it goes on for. But he continues to say, Agent Smith says, but as you well know, appearances can be deceiving, which brings me back to the reason why we're here. We're not here because we're free. And if you remember the quote that I ended on, he says to Neo, apparently we're free. But he continues and says, we're not here because we're free. We're here because we're not free. There is no escaping reason, no denying purpose. Because as we both know, without purpose, we would not exist. And then a bunch of clones start to walk in, and they all trade lines, but they say that it is purpose that created us, it is purpose that connects us, it is purpose that pulls us, it is purpose that guides us, that drives us, it is purpose that defines us and binds us. We are here because of you, Mr. Anderson. We are here to take from you what you tried to take from us purpose and this is when he he jabs neo and tries to you know assimilate him that type of thing this might be a stretch but when i rewatched it for this recording i think that entire bit that i just read and really kind of agent smith's entire entrance in that right before the big brawl everything he says is about how Yes, they've created the Matrix, what we learned from the Architect and the Oracle. There's all these different iterations. They have to go through different things. They have to re reach this equilibrium. They don't defrag it. They don't defragment the Matrix. The reason that Neo and Agent Smith and all these anomalies are occurring is because they can't, or the machines for some reason not can't, but don't realize to defrag their entity. They don't realize to push out the bad that exists from previous iterations. That's why the Merovingian is still here. That's why the Train Man is still here. That's why the twins are still here. And, and I totally take the twins to be previous agents from earlier iterations of the Matrix. I fucking love that this monologue from Agent Smith turns into they didn't take good care of their computer, so I'm able to thrive as a virus, and I'm going to thrive until I can thrive no more. And that, of course, turns into the third movie with him basically becoming everybody in the Matrix and the extent of growing out into the real world being Bane or pseudo-Bane or whatever it is, which I don't know if we know at this point in the movie. I don't know. What do you think about that? Is there anything I'm off base on, or am I thinking too much about this? <laughs> no, like, but I think... Um... I, I think you maybe have introduced a new layer to this uh, dissection of these films in that maybe the Wachowskis are giving the audience too much credit for being on the same page as them. That's what like, I said last week with the cookie thing. 
I, that when I said I love that the Oracle gives Neo a cookie, and you said, "Well, yeah, was that their intent, or are you reading into it too much, Rob?" I think it's their intent, and I think what you just said hit the nail on the head. They are trying to give us way too much credit as an audience, and it takes years of viewing to penetrate that credibility, right? Well, I think that's the thing. I was like, you, you were going off on your explanation of like defragging the yes. Matrix. Yes. And I'm like, I wonder how many people listening to this know what that means. Okay, so purpose. When when Agent Smith says purpose, he talks a lot about you've taken my purpose from me. When I got deleted, I was devoid of purpose. There's no escaping reason, no denying purpose. That is when I feel if you delete something on your computer, it still takes up space. Like I just said, the whole thing. If you put something in your trash and you remove it, you have to actually do a lot more work to actually remove that from your computer to make it irrecoverable. Because the purpose that that file has from its inception to its moment in the trash bin to when it's deleted and you think it's gone, its purpose is inextricably linked to a fragment of RAM. And if you don't defrag after deleting certain things, those will live on your computer for the rest of time. I'm not saying they're going to turn to Agent Smith and, you know, and cancel your programs and Solitaire is not going to turn to Minesweep or any shit like that. But that's what the Wachowskis are playing on. They go, what if that happened? What if this program who was deleted that should have been defragmented was still latching on to some modicum of RAM, a square or a rectangle in the GUI of a computer, and they took that to mean I can expand to the rest of it. It's so fucking cool to me, Zach. I fucking love this shit. <laughs> but that's the thing. I think that it's, it's just like the dweebs personification of how a computer works. Fair, fair. But like, like on a level that like even the, like the makers of Tron – like who would have thought that like Tron Legacy is maybe a, has a better understanding of like yes. how to communicate these things yeah. to a mass audience? Oh, I'm sorry. I uh, said I said yes in response to you. I should have said yeah. <laughs> I thought you were going for a bit reference. Yes, yes, yes. Oh no, I was. I'm just doing the. Uh, am I still the creative purpose of a perfect system? Yeah. <laughs> I think I need to just condition myself, much like our uh, annihilation. <laughs> Sting. Every time you say Tron Legacy, I will respond to your point with, yeah. <laughs> Am I still to create the perfect system? Yeah. Ah, uh, beautiful, beautiful delivery of a line. <laughs> um, yeah, no, like I said, I, I think, again, it's the idea that maybe the, the Wachowskis feel like everybody's along for the ride, so they don't have to kind of grease the skids, so to speak. Um, and that's to their ultimate detriment. Not that you have to assume everybody is like kind of out in the middle of nowhere, but I do think you kind of have to sit there. Like it's kind of like it's like a slip and slide. It doesn't take too much water to get people going, but you still got to get the hose out. And and I mm-hmm. think that's mm-hmm. the ultimate folly of this film. That's I think I, the okay. groundwork is there. The problem is they just haven't turned the water on enough so people can make it all the way. It's like I think probably the, the best analogy I can make for the Matrix Reloaded and Revolutions. It's a slip and slide. Where the water is just barely there to get you like halfway through the slide, <laughs> and you just kind of sit there and you're like, "Well, this." And you have to like get up and then like you have like, like grass on your like legs and stuff. Would you go as far chat. to say as maybe it's a it's it's a it's a water slide with very little water, so you might get chafed, but also a la Action Park, there's a loop to loop that cuts your back open. Because <laughs> I think well, some that... people would say that third movie is really a abra- revolution is really abrasive. I guess I've not watched that in a while. Okay. So, and I, yeah. and is that is the one I remember as my favorite. I'm going to reserve judgment on that and 
until uh, I have a chance to rewatch it. Sure. And we sure. tell may, maybe uh, table that notion until okay. next week's discussion. Yep. I haven't watched it yet um, either, so yeah, that'll be. I guess I, yeah. I think the third film like has a lot of fun moments in it. Like I said, and I love the idea of like again, like I one of my favorite movie sequences of all time. Not to jump ahead, but like is that sequence with like Neo, a blinded Neo going to. I don't even know what the hell you would call it in the Machine City. It has a name, I know, but like I, I don't know what it is. Oh, you're talking about like the, have... the source of the source, like the when the Sentinels make the big face type yeah. of thing. Yeah. yeah okay. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And it's like, and like he has like this thing with them, and this machine has arrogance. Yet Neo's like the passive one, and he's like, <laughs> it's like we don't need like Rob will insert the clip if he feels like it. I only ask to say what I've come to say. After that, do what you want, and I will try and stop you. program smith has grown beyond your control soon he will spread through the city as he spread through the matrix you cannot stop him but i can if that's true then i've made a mistake and you should kill me now The program we, Smith has gotten out of your control. Yes, I remember we that don't line. Need yeah. your help, and it's like it swarms. Like it starts like swarming him, and like like in Keanu Reeves is doing his most like passive, just like completely unemotional like voice. He's like, "That I've made a grave mistake, and you should end my life right now." Yes. and it's like I love that. Like I, 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 I that's so much fun. Like mm-hmm. watching like the human being, like watching the inverse of how you imagine these two characters are emoting. Yeah, um, yeah, that's, that's fun. It's a like, big sentinel face too. <laughs> yeah, too. And then, like even the Neo's thing with Smith, and like once uh, he's assimilated Neo, and he's like, I "Is this it. finished? I've won. I knew it. I've seen. I would win." No, it cannot like, is, be. Is, 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 is it over? And he's is just like over? nods his head, and they all start to just kind of like just like crack, and the light God. starts like just like beaming through them. No, like I, what I, a great I, I moment, feel- man. <laughs> action sequences like i love like even watching uh oh god getting to see uh, jada pinkett smith like actually emote like she's like piloting the giant like ship and you have the guy who's the captain and he's just like jesus i didn't know this thing could move like this <laughs> and she's just like and like and they're just like i love like it's one of my f- i think i mentioned this like I, oh god like battleship the 2012 movie sure. i love watching turrets just picking off targets it's just something i love okay like on a level i can't really define properly and it's like i just love that and like you have like all these turrets just like picking off sentinels as they're trying to get into like back to zion as they just like and you have the kid and he like he's on mofunis like uh, apc Dude. oh no like, I, I, oh when we get full-on like anime in that third movie that's some of my I love that stuff. Like I said, and even watching, like, even, like I can still remember, like in the theater, like watching that moment as we see like the drill just slowly pierce through like the ceiling of Zion. Yep. yep. And once again, we have turrets shooting at a target, and I'm just like, I, I have a feeling, like once again, like I feel like where Rob is very energized by this movie. I feel like the third one's gonna be my stride of like yes, good. I'm like give me good. We need one of, of them, the Zach. Go- you were very give uninterested last week, and this time it's mine. So we need one you, from you. Third, <laughs> what makes it? And I guess I will delve more into this next week. But like, I can still remember walking out of the third one and being like genuinely like disappointed. Oh, it was just fascinating. Okay, okay. As, like it's one of those movies. Like I think I've talked about. It, like the ultimate movie that like 
I remember like loving as a kid was Pierce Brosnan's Die Another Day. Like, I adored <laughs> sure. that movie as a kid. And then like right after Skyfall, Skyfall came out, like I rewatched that for like the first time in like almost ten years, and I'm like, this is garbage. <laughs> I'm like, <laughs> like I guess funny. I just rewatched that film in the last year, and I'm like, yeah, this is fu- it's goofy, but it's fine. It's nothing to get upset about. Um, but no, I think Resurrections is like like one of those few instances where I didn't like something as a kid. And then, like, oh, as an adult, okay. I'm like, this is neat. I'm like, this is a lot of fun. And like I said, I've always said that, like, I am a sucker for, like, uh, an adventure romp. Um, even, like, oh, God, like, oh, God, okay, I gotta keep my powder dry. One last thing about Revolutions. Like, <laughs> I even love the sequence of, like, where, like, where it's, it's real world, like, stuff. And we have, like, Bane and Neo are fighting. And, like, we have that moment where, like, Neo can see him, and it's just, like, that fire. It's, like, like whatever you want to call it. It's, like, this incendiary silhouette. Sure. And, like, he bashes – what is it? He decapitates him with, like, a crowbar. Yes. Um, and I just love that, like, look of, like, Smith. Like, it's, like – it's, like, you see that, like, in, in – flamed like silhouette and it's like has the sunglasses and like this like angry like just like grimace of like gritting teeth and he just like decapitates it and it just mm-hmm. kind of extinguishes itself i'm like yeah i'm like i want this like that's and that's the thing like is somebody who loves that i'm so afraid that we're gonna like with resurrections we're gonna go back to just like what the first movie is like, like I have a feeling I and I think that's what they're going to do. I think Resurrections is going to be the Wachowski's versions of the Force Awakens in Jurassic World. Oh, no, I think no. I think it's, it's going to be no, no, no. it's going to be like I said, I don't think it's going to be a by any stretch of the imagination. It's not going to be a boring movie. But I think like oh god who's who's Candyman? Yaya Mabul Mateen. Yaya like, Mabul Mateen like, the third. Yeah. <laughs> the third thank you i think it's um, the that, third it might be the second but yeah everybody knows what we're talking about <laughs> i i think it's the idea that like it's gonna be the jurassic worldification where like you're gonna have like like it's like oh oscar isaac isn't poe dameron he's just han solo light mm, and it's gotcha. like and i think that's what it's going to be is that like it's just gonna it's gonna be the wachowski well a wachowski in a Wachowski version of Jurassic World and Force Awakens, which is still going to be a, like a fun romp. Oh, absolutely. Um, it's going to be better Wachowski's, than the two movies you mentioned. The Wachowskis that, have yeah. never made a dull movie. Like never. they've never, like, that's what, they might not have made perfect movies each time, but they've never made a dull movie. I got to say, uh, I think, I think I mentioned it briefly last week. If it wasn't last week, it was in one of our Spider-Man episodes or it could have been off mic. I don't remember because this trailer's been out for a while. I love the fact that one of the credited writers for the new Matrix movie is David Mitchell, who wrote Cloud Atlas. I love that fact. <laughs> no comment. No comment. Okay. Well, Zach, <laughs> if we can if we can divert from revolutions and resurrections, and I think last week we also said there was going to be relusions, illusions with an R in front of it. I believe we made that joke. But if we get back to the reloaded Matrix... There was something I wanted to bring up that I figured you would enjoy because it upsets me to no end. For years, years, I'm talking, since, you know, in, when I was late high school, in college, when I started doing all my, you know, internet security, cybersecurity stuff, I started to think about one character in The Matrix Reloaded in a very specific way. And I have to say that I am deeply butthurt that David from Carte Blanche with Griffin and David had the same exact take on this character that I did. Not only down to what we think this character represents, but the actual terminology for this character. 
Zach, can we play? Please take a few moments to talk about Seraph, the guardian of the Oracle. Oh God, I've had to use a login screen. Okay, not only that he's a login screen, that he is a chap, a challenge handshake authentication protocol. That's what he is. That is a much more secure version of a login screen. Talking about just computers in general, you have PAP, Password Authentication Protocol. That is very original. Uh, That's very insecure. You want something that is called a CHAP, a Challenge Handshake Authentication Protocol. Most people today know CHAP or the extension of it in terms of two-factor authentication. If you've ever had to do something like you log into your email, and before you can get into your email, they send your, uh, like a little password to your phone, you type that in, that is a, a newer, more advanced version of a CHAP. Challenge Handshake Authentication Protocol. Like I said to you before, Zach, I did not listen to all, all 100 minutes of their episode on The Matrix Reloaded. Because, the best yes. part is, it, like, at the 70-minute mark, David's like, yeah, we're just running too long. We gotta wrap this up. And I'm like, Jesus. Compared to some of the other stuff they would do for, like, three hours. Yeah. I'm like, Everybody look at our Sam Raimi Spider-Man trilogy episode. Hey, hey, hey. <laughs> I want that on record that we t- I, I know that's like our longest running episode. Four hours, 40 minutes. Yep. But but if you break that down, the fact that we've never covered three movies in one episode, that is like actually if you take that and divide it by three, that's not the longest we've talked about a movie. That's like as of fair. now, the record to be fair, the film that we've talked the longest about is Ted Bundy. That's the longest we've ever, even The Shining. We talked about Room Two Thirty Seven. Yeah, yep, I was about to say that's two. We had to take four out, well, almost four hours divided by two. Absolutely, Ted Bundy is exactly. a long one. Yeah, Ted Bundy is the longest we've ever talked about a singular film, and I cannot think of a better film that has that title. Uh, <laughs> and folks in the cinema audience, Zach does not want to no, finish no. the Matthew Bright filmography. No, no that guy's a pervert. I no, am going I'm to fight for that so fucking hard on next the year. Put him on the page. Okay, no, Rob, that is pure. Zach, I don't want to talk about it with the Ben. I need to talk about it with you. <laughs> Rob, I'll make you. How about this, Rob? I'll put Ben's this... going to go, these are weird sex pervert movies. <laughs> At least you're going to go, these are weird sex pervert movies, but we can have some fun conversation about them. <laughs> Rob, I will make you a deal. I will give you an ultimatum. Oh, no. Okay. We're putting on the if record, you... really? Okay. Yes. <laughs> I'll make you a deal. We will fit... We will do the Matthew Bright series. If you can three more movies. Get a... It's only three more movies. That's fine. That's fine. I'm just saying. I'm just saying. Only, only if if you can get a hold of him and he agrees to come on the podcast. Oh, shit. That, for the fourth episode in the series, it's talking to Matthew Bright. If you can get him to agree to an interview, at the end of the season, tell him we've talked about Ted Bundy. We want to do his entire filmography. And for the final episode of the series dedicated for that month, we want to interview him. If you can arrange that, I will agree to it. Okay. I think that is a fair ultimatum. I think that's fair as well. I don't think it's the most fair because you're the fucking person talking about Freeway back in the day, Zach. So don't don't think it was all me <laughs> wanting to do the rest of this baby. filmography. <laughs> I will we'll look into that. We'll look into that. Okay. Okay. But back to carte blanche. <laughs> I was actually upset from what I scrubbed through. David calls it exactly this. He calls Seraph a login screen like you mentioned, but he actually uses the phrase the phrase challenge handshake authentication protocol and I'm upset that somebody else on a podcast I dislike had the same thought as me. Uh, anywhere in the last five to seven years. So just wanted to say that I'm bummed. I'm bummed, Zach. I thought I was going to come in here with a hot take. I've been beaten to it, got to say. I'm sorry, Rob. (laughs) So I do want to bring up, while we're on this topic of Seraph, because something that interested me in that carte blanche episode, before David describes what I'm describing, how this is a personification of 
something looking for a challenge handshake, something to show that you are the person that needs to be there. I know that Griffin says something like, Seraph is a wholly unnecessary character. What do you think? Because I think, Zach, we're getting the sense that maybe me coming at this from a computer perspective is a lot different from what you're getting from just watching this movie. What do you think about Seraph as a character? I think he's very necessary because we have these computer uh, iterations or computer relations, I should say. Do you think he's unnecessary as a guardian of the Oracle? He's he's a flourish. Like everything Does that else make him unnecessary, movie. though? Well, it, okay, it, it's it, it, uh, beauty's in the eye of the beholder in the sense of he's a Fair. flourish. If you if you're inclined to like that sort of thing, then no. Um, well, it's, I, guess, it's, I guess maybe let's pin it down. What do you think about the whole thing of him saying, you know, um, you don't know anyone until you fight them? Like I had to fight you to know you were the one. Well, okay, but we this, at this point though, like it's I don't know if it's necessary or unnecessary. It might be more gratuitous because we know Neo's the one. There's no reason to question neo's validity it's seraph is the one that we should be questioning and he's the one judging our character who's who's oh god virtue is indisputable so sure, by sure so then by answering david's question on carte blanche it's then yes it is a superfluous character and moment it's there solely to just be there for some reason it's a flourish okay okay i i hear what you're saying so this also brings me into Enter the Matrix. <laughs> Enter the Matrix. There's a scene where the Oracle calls upon Seraph to to act or ask for his his protection. So there is an actual scene where you know Seraph shows up to the Oracle's apartment, and the Oracle says, "Thank you for coming on such short notice." Seraph says something like, "Don't worry, I'm indebted to you. What do we need to do next?" That type of thing. So my question is, if you can try and put yourself in the Rob mindset or from things you've read. Nothing in the Matrix lore really explains to me why the Oracle would need to call on Seraph as a guardian, because he is not there in the first movie. It is literally in the Enter the Matrix cutscenes, which takes place between the first and second movies, where she calls on Seraph for his guardianship and for his, you know, password type of protection. Is there any reason you can think that that would be necessary other than the fact that we have been forced in, which something else I want to talk about, the Oracle changing actors because the Gloria Foster died and we needed an explanation for the new Oracle in the third movie and the video game. Do you think that the Wachowskis did this bringing in Seraph solely because they had the idea that, you know, the Oracle was going to give up her shell code to give Sati life? That's why she looks different in the third movie. She trades, or rather, she gives the father of Sati her shell codes so he can trade them to the Merovingian for Sati's life, and the Merovingian decides to delete her shell codes, which makes her change appearances. Do you think the Wachowskis had that in mind all, all the time, or do you think they are backtracking because Gloria Foster died and they had to replace it with, um, uh, what's her name, Alice? Shit, I didn't write it down because it's in the third movie. Uh, I'll, 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 I'll bring it up. I'll get the right name. But do you know what I'm saying, Zach? What do you think about that level to the Wachowski storytelling? Well, it feels like retconning. I, I don't know. Apparently from things that I've read over the years, there was a lot reshot. Because, again, these were filmed back to back. Yes. 
So some things were picked up after the fact and kind of like quietly inserted into the Mary, second film. Mary Alice, sorry to interrupt. Mary Alice is who plays her in the end of the Enter the Matrix and the third Matrix movie. There we go. <laughs> yeah, like I said, I, I think it was something that was kind of just like baked, like it kind of just uh, grafted on after the fact. Um, it's pretty cohesive. Like it, it's easily one of the least noticeable scenes in this. Okay. In these two movies. But yeah, I think it was a decision made after the fact. I do not think it was something that they had from the get-go. I have to agree with you because, of course, you know, if, if in production, if somebody dies, it's a very unfortunate thing and you have to write around it. If you don't write around it, uh, you have to deal with the fact that you are putting it on your audience to believe that this is the same person. Um, I know no death happened, but it makes me think of... Um, Rachel Dawes in Batman Begins and The Dark Knight. You know, it's what it's it's Maggie Gyllenhaal in The Dark Knight, and it's Katie Holmes in Dark Knight and Batman Begins, something like that. Yeah, but yes, th- but Katie that's Holmes not you know did. nobody died. Yes. Katie Holmes didn't die. I mean, you know, but she just had contract disputes or whatever. And and they do it. Tom Cruise, rock, rock, well, rock. Yeah, Tom that, Cruise wouldn't allow her. I actually actively thought to myself to not make that joke, but you did for <laughs> me, Zach. So perfect. But um, but you know, you know what I'm saying. In in Dark Knight. There's no mention of that. There's no mention that, you know, Maggie Gyllenhaal is different from Katie Holmes, that Rachel Dawes has changed appearances, anything like that. Here they make the decision to actively, actively discuss it, whether it be in because it's in the video game, of course, that type of thing, whether it be the little tidbits we get in the third movie, they make the choice to actively discuss why they have a different character or actor, actress playing this role. What do you think about that in general, Zach? Just the idea of, you know recasting and notifying people about it. I think that's kind of weird because I I was trying to rack my brain for another instance where this happened, where recasting occurred and it was made noticeable, like through the narrative. You know, because I'm also thinking, this might not be the best example, but like there's a reason that Tom Hardy is Mad Max in Mad Max Fury Road, you know? Don Cheeto. Don Cheeto and Oh, Iron Man. yes, Don Cheeto and uh, fucking Terrence Howard. Absolutely. No mention of that whatsoever. Mark Ruffalo, Edward Norton. Edward Norton. Okay, so Zach, what do you think in general? Because we've been talking a lot about the movie-making process and stuff like that. What do you think? As If you were a director or a casting agent or anything like that, would you want to make no mention of the recasting or write in the recasting. I find that such a fascinating idea. Well, I think it's, okay, like, there's two schools of thought on this. There's, like, the James Bond way of doing it where you just kind of ignore it and you go with the flow. Ah, okay. Um, James Bond can, is a title and not a person, that idea, you know? That's pervaded the culture Unless you're Daniel Craig and you catch, like, mechanical coronavirus. <laughs> um, I knew we'd have to get, get to that. <laughs> so much i hate that movie so much um no i I think any any filmmaker or creatives want to be a seamless transition um there is this the line of dialogue from iron man 2 when don cheeto walks in and like robert downey jr starts talking to him and he's like i'm here like like i'm present like just deal with it and like it the movie begins. Never would have uh, remembered that, so thank you. <laughs> he says something like that. That, that. It was a horrible paraphrasing, but he, they do bring sure. some attention to we'll, it. We'll see if I have enough uh, motivation to search out the clip in Iron Man 2. We'll see how that goes. Literally the first five minutes of the movie. <laughs> hey, that's better. That's better than I was hoping for. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's completely the first scene in the movie. Um, the committee would now like to invite Lieutenant Colonel James Rhodes to the chamber. Rhodey? What? Hey, buddy. 
Didn't expect to see you here. Look, it's me. I'm here. Deal with it. Let's I move on. I, I just I drop it. it. All right, I'll drop it. So yeah, like I said, I, okay. I, I can't imagine. Any, and like I said, I think what the Wachowskis do with the Oracle is pretty pretty seamless. Like it's. I, I can't imagine anybody walking out of Revolutions in November 2003 being like, you know what, that was a, a 100, 10 out of 10, but you know what? Why'd they recast the Oracle? <laughs> <laughs> the explanation, like, come on! I, I think uh-huh. also, while we're on the top of the Oracle, I believe last week, Zach, you mentioned that you really, really liked Gloria Foster's scene as the Oracle. Um, what do you think about her? This, if, if I'm not misremembering that, what did you think about this this time? Of course, she has a lot less to do. I think it's probably, from what I read, it was like the last thing anybody filmed with her ever before she died. And it's just her sitting on a bench feeding pigeons. She gives great dialogue, as far as I'm concerned. It's almost, you know, architect esque. Uh, but what did you well, think? Yeah, it's, it's it's very like okay, performance wise. Gloria Foster is there. Nothing about nothing against her. Sure. Um, once again, I think the dialogue is a little too veiled. Um, she's too cryptic and like like it's a little too sing songy. It almost reminds me of like a troll like under the bridge like sitting there. Um, whereas she's pretty straightforward in the first film is what she, what point she's trying to get at. In this, it just feels like oh god, intentionally difficult. Like whereas like Neo's asking questions. And like he's like, well, like so you're a program then, bingo. Like it's like okay. Um, Are there other programs that... like you? Well, not like me, you know that type of stuff. Yeah. Well, yeah. Like, like, like we have a very like again in May of 2003, people's understanding of this world was very shaky at best, and we're like kind of like, like beating around the bush when it comes to explaining the very loose rules of how the Matrix works. Um, everyone's kind of positioned in it, and it's like, come on! Mm-hmm. It's like, 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 leave that for the architect. Let the architect be the ambiguous one, the sense of like, okay, like, like, who is the man behind the curtain, and what decisions is he making when he pulls certain levers? The mm-hmm. oracle's on our side. She's not supposed to challenge us in this way. She's supposed to sit there, like, when you ask her questions about the future, be be di- not difficult, but just be a little. Oh God! Uh, provide resistance, but like that's the thing. It's like she's supposed to kind of like lay the boundaries out, and that's yeah. once again. I, I feel like the Wachowskis just feel everybody is like them. Where when you're making trying to make a a, a quasi four quadrant film, you cannot assume that. Okay, uh, I, I like yes. I said, there's two there's two ways to go about this. Like I, if you have opposite ends of the spectrum, you have the Wachow- you have the Matrix sequels way of explaining the the, the rules of the world and then you have the avengers endgame way where it's like a, a back to the future is bullshit not like, like die hard yep <laughs> yeah it's just like it's like like it, it goes from spoon feeding to basically just kind of like chucking somebody like a fine pork roast through like a brick wall um it's I, under, like, you, I understand what you're saying about the oracle but i i think that maybe this is something that i we should be setting up which we have at last week's episode, we're doing it now, the Oracle's purpose really comes into play in the third movie. I think the ending of Revolutions is when we can talk a lot about, well, what is the Oracle doing with her, you know, guiding versus obfuscating versus doublespeak and that type of stuff. I mean, don't get me wrong, 
she she is doing something very much like the architect uh, Gloria Foster in the scene before well, she, the big well, brawl. That's what the architect says. He's like, "Where I I am the father of the Matrix. She is undoubtedly the mother." Yes, and a um, great moment. Neo goes the Oracle, and the architect goes, "Please." <laughs> <laughs> I love that moment where it's like. Thus, the answer was stumbled upon by another, an intuitive program, initially created to investigate certain aspects of the human psyche. If I am the father of the Matrix, she would undoubtedly be its mother. The Oracle. Please. As I was saying, she stumbled upon a solution whereby nearly 99% of all test subjects accepted the program as long as they were given a choice, even if they were only aware of the choice at a near unconscious level. She's not an oracle. She's another program, that type of thing. But also, in the, the oracle speech in this movie, you know, when Neo offers her the candy or to sit or something like that, Neo says, if you already know what I'm going to do, how can I make a choice? And, she's, and she says, I think the thesis of the fucking movie, which is, this is where I want to transition to this. The oracle says, because you didn't come here to make the choice, you've already made it. You're here to try to understand why you made that choice. I thought you'd have figured that out by now. And here's the thing. When she says, you didn't come here to make the choice, you've already made it, she follows it up with, you're here to try to understand why you made that choice. And this, to me, is the essence of The Matrix Reloaded. If, Zach, you remember, and all our cinema audience from last week, the first movie is so much about perspective. I talked a lot about how it is not only about realizing yourself and how you perceive yourself, but looking into reflective surfaces and realizing how other people perceive you. And that is the first step to becoming a human. It's self-actualization, you know? I mean, it's the, the, the Wachowski started at the top of Maslow's hierarchy of needs, that type of thing. But this movie takes it to the next level. They say, well, okay. If you know that you have a perspective of yourself, if Neo perceives himself to be the one, and he realizes that everybody else perceives him to be the one, there's nothing really else there that's troubling. You, as an individual, have reached an equilibrium in terms of perception. But how do you continue from there? Because that's not just what life is. Life is not just realizing that, like, oh, I'm who I see myself and I want to be, and other people see me the same way. You have to keep that going. You have to make choices you have to make decisions and i think zach before i even get further into my diatribe isn't it kind of isn't the matrix reloaded kind of beating you over the fucking head that it's about making choices because every 15 minutes when we get a new character they give a monologue about choices did you pick that up <laughs> yeah but that's more of like that's the heavy-handed philosophical. Oh, absolutely, aspect of all absolutely. This. Yeah, it's the stuff that I latch onto the most. <laughs> I I think about choice. This movie gets at so many great ideas. It's it's also it's about the choices humans make regarding the Matrix. You know, we talk a lot about the idea of you know we're freeing minds and putting them in Zion. Uh, we got the idea of choice in the first movie with Cipher. He chose to go back to the Matrix and, you know, revolt against Neo, Morpheus, that type of stuff. But I don't think it's just about the choices humans make, whether they, they survive the machines or anything like that. I think it's also about the choices that the machines make. And, of course, once again, everybody might be saying, well, Rob, it's a machine. It's a robot. How can it make choices? Well... Every AI is given parameters, and that's what the, the architect talks about at the end of the movie. He says that, you know, he couldn't remove the one, the glitch in the Matrix, that for some reason makes it work. He could never remove that. 
because of his parameters for perfection. The oracle has different parameters that he does, and that guides our choices. And I think even putting that in the sense of machines, when we program a machine, when the Merovingian programs an orgasm cake, he programs it with parameters. It's going to do certain things under certain circumstances. And this movie gets it so much that, yes, while we as humans have no parameters in the definitive term of what that means in computing technology, we are still limited to our own beliefs and our own thoughts of the outcome that makes those choices human. And when you give that to a machine, such as the Merovingians, such as Agent Smith, They're making choices that are almost, you know, once again, a simulation of human choices. Not a simulacrum, because human choices still exist, so it is a simulation. I love this idea. I love that this movie is about choice. It's not only about choice from humans, but it's about when you create a machine that is so complex, it is starting to make its own choices. And yes, those choices might be able to be viewed in a flowchart through if-then statements and such nature, but then something goes wrong. When you don't defrag your computer, when you don't deal with the, the exiled programs of the Merovingian, of the Keymaker, and things like that, you're going to get uncertainty And that makes a simulacrum of human existence almost identical to human existence. And that is why I think Neo is so importantly, or sorry, the one in all the iterations, is so importantly tied to humanity. I think that it's very subtle, but in the architect's final speech, when he does that thing where he's like, you're different, Neo, you fell in love with a person, not humanity. That's what you've always done before. You fell in love with the good of humans, but now you're looking at one person. I think that what they're getting at is also saying the Matrix has gotten so out of our control that we can no longer differentiate the decisions of our programs from the decisions of anomalies, hence the existence of Agent Smith. He's just as much an anomaly as Neo is. And I think that they are so linked, which, of course, Agent Smith says in this movie and the next one, I think they are so linked that they're getting at this idea of, well, How long can we let a system go unchecked? Will that lead to decisions that we cannot discern as rational or foretold that they become something that we need to prescribe the word fate for? Thoughts, Zach? (laughs) (laughs) And our audience, please write in. (laughs) No, very, like I said, a lot of speculation there. Um, very lofty goals when it comes to storytelling. Yes, absolutely. The problem is that it's all telling and not showing the audience. Uh, well, and how, that's my problem. Is that like it's just it's exposition dumps. How would and you show this though? Okay, is there okay. a way to show it? Oh, easily. That's a ser- that's a serious ca- question too. I'm not. It's I'm not called trying to be- being a creative. It's called show the audience, not tell. And maybe if they put as much effort into visually elaborating on all this context as opposed to like side stories for tertiary characters, okay, then yeah, maybe okay. they would have had a film that resonated for the last 20 years as opposed to being the butt <laughs> of a joke. 
Um, that's my, like I said, I, that's my answer to this. Like there are, again, I love this. Like as, as somebody who you listen to parts of the blank check episode, I kind of was tickled fancy where like Griffin's like, God damn it. He's going to make me want, like, I was, I forgot how much like Griffin did not like these movies. I the never knew that until I listened to it. Yeah. I listened to that chunk where he's he like, listens. I hate these movies. I hate him. I hate him. I hate him. And I was actually re- relieved because I was like, Oh, thank God I'm different from Griffin. Thank God. <laughs> But like he even says a couple of times in that discussion where he's just like, God damn it, David's gonna make me like love these movies. Yeah, I know it, it goes to the like, Seraph thing. I know that happened where he's like, Oh shit, that's a good explanation and I'm just like, Fuck you, I've been thinking about this for twenty years, you know? <laughs> and like even like I said, I love like there's some elements in this too, even with the architect where he's going through this thing where it's like uh like there are there are two eventualities to this decision. It's like either you sit oh, there or uh, yes. save everybody and this whole thing resets uh, or just, you just save quick, Trinity. Just, just real quick, Zach, you... if, I, if I might. Uh, there are two doors. The door to your right leads to the source and oh, the Jesus. salvation Can I please finish my point? The door to your left leads me. back to the Matrix, to her, and to the end you're of your You're reading off a piece of paper. This doesn't As you adequately put, the problem is choice. But we already know that what you're going to do, don't we? Already I can see the chain reaction. The chemical precursors that signal the onset of an emotion designed specifically to overwhelm logic and reason. An emotion that is already binding you to the simple and obvious truth. She is going to die, and there is nothing you can do to stop it. <laughs> yes, I'm, 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 I am reading off a piece of paper. Yeah, I know. Like, if, I, if I remembered the entire thing, I would have went as the architect for Halloween. I would have bought a white suit and sat in a chair. <laughs> Congratulations, your medal's in the mail. Um, Thank you. <laughs> so, no, but I, I love that moment where he's explaining that like, dichotomy as to what happens. And then it's like, well, if all of humanity's destroyed, then you'll be destroyed. And he adds that layer of there are means of survival to which we are willing to cope with. And I'm like, I fucking love I, that line. When I he, know. Neo like, says, the, you won't let that happen. You need humans to survive. And he goes, there are levels of survivals we are ready to tolerate. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm like, fuck yes, dude. <laughs> Tolerate him. I know. And that's what makes these these movies so frustrating because clearly there's some like really bonkers ideas behind them. And and yet like like that is a phenomenal provocative line of dialogue that begins and ends there and we never get we, it never gets referenced again. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I mean, I gotta rewatch the third one because you, you. I'm with you. I haven't seen it in a while, but I think you're right that you know this kind of moment of the architect when Neo makes the choice to save Trinity and not to reset the Matrix and take what do they say? It's like the one and twenty three people, sixteen female, seven male, will recreate Zion. You know that type of, or repopulate Zion. He chooses not to. He chooses to save Trinity. And I also love the fact that the movie still has 10 minutes to go after that. And there's a great moment where Neo says to Morpheus, he's like, yeah, it was all a lie. I'm just a glitch. Like, I'm here to make the Matrix work, you know? And Morpheus goes, oh, fuck. I guess I'm going to sit in a chair for the next three hours. And that's what he does in Matrix Revolutions. (laughs) Hey, hey, hey. He doesn't sit in a chair for the next three hours. He sits in a cave for the next three hours. Nice. Okay. Nice. He literally has no character outside of like yeah. having a tur- gun and sitting in a chair. He has nothing to do. With That's what I, I remember having some problems with Morpheus having nothing to do in the third movie, which is something I'm sure we'll get into next week for sure. <laughs> Can we please talk about the ending and then please like like then segue into Bane? Okay. Yes. Oh, yes. We have to. Okay. So the ending. Do you want to talk about the ending in the sense of uh, EMP from the real world? Hands yes. of Neo. Okay kind of wild right like still even when i know it's coming it caught me off guard when i rewatched it for this recording i have a question did you think that there was some 
weird, wonky Inception things going on when you saw this the first time. I remember me, like, with very little notion of The Matrix, I think watching this for the first time on HBO, you know, back in the day, just seeing The Matrix Reloaded, I was like, oh, are they still in The Matrix type of thing? Like, how how does Neo, how can Neo do these things in the real world? I'm, I'm kind of less in that train of thought because I know the lore of the matrix and stuff like that. But I don't know. I wanted to get your opinion. Did you think that there was kind of some like tomfoolery going around when he EMP'd Sentinels from his hand? Well, this is what happened. Like in 2003, mm-hmm. I remember like, this is, this is another example of me saying the movie never lets anything breathe. And that like for the entire first movie and for 95% of the second movie, we're told Neo is like internet Jesus. Yes. And when we're told, then like in the last fifteen minutes, and we're told, yeah, he's just like part of this whole like, grand scheme. It's like as an audience member, you are essentially Morpheus, and you're like, I don't believe it. Like, like we've been told for now, God, all, like nearly four hours of screen time, Neo's the one he can do the impossible. Never mind, yes. we've seen him do the impossible. We have not been shown that he's. I don't want to say impotent. But he's not what he's been made out to be. So, like, when that happens, it just seems like, oh, yeah, like, he is the one. Like, like it's like, okay, like, you told us he's not the one. I have no reason to believe that. Sure. And then immediately following that, you give us a sequence of him doing something spectacular. And it's like, okay. So you completely undercut your entire, like, like thesis of this film. Well, isn't that also kind of what the first movie set up with the scene with the Oracle? And the Oracle says, you know, you're only going to know you're the one if you know you're the one. And then Neo goes, what the fuck does that mean? And Gloria Foster goes, you're not the one. Like, like, isn't isn't this kind of uncertainty around him being this special figure? Isn't that kind of key to that character at this point? Um, but at that, but by good lord, was that the two hour and, and, and well, two minute mark? Sure. <laughs> um, that's like we've completely moved beyond that character arc. Like, like we have completed that character arc where we know he's the one. Okay. Uh, yeah. Yeah. But isn't isn't more of the revelation to get? I guess get back to this movie. Isn't more of the revelation that. He is the one in the sense that he has these abilities, but in terms of the grand scheme of the iteration of the Matrix, that does not make him special. Um, but that's – you're not wrong, like, yes, but it, it's the idea that, like, there's – we were told all of this. Like, there should be a moment where we have, like, the I think about, like, whatever we're going to call it, the architect's office, whatever you, the central core I think it's of called the, the source in canon. Sure, the I source. I think it's the source, yeah. if, if we had a moment where the architect tells him that, like, he is part of the grand design of all this, and we see Neo using his quote-unquote powers, and we see the architect do something to either make him impotent or something to visually demonstrate the point that they're trying to get across to us. Okay. It would be very, it would be even, it would be defining it. It would but be that, ve- under. You're right. You're right. I, I'm totally with you, but that, that is not what the one is. The one is inherent to the matrix to make it work. The, the, the prophecy of hope is there to make people have hope and to let the matrix survive every hundred years before it reaches that critical mass. I think that, you know, what you're describing is a totally different movie because the architect does say, it's like, Neo, you're not special. You're special in this iteration, but there's been five of you before. There's going to be five more after you, and you have to make a choice. 
Yes, things are a little different because of what the Oracle's done this time, but you are not special. You are created to be a machination of the Matrix to make it work. And that's what he tells Morpheus at the end of the movie. He's like, I'm sorry, the prophecy wasn't fulfilled. But but that's the thing, though, is that, like, Neo's being told... He he he's unique, but it's like Kanthi's saying, like with China, is that like in China, one in a million means there's two thousand of you. Sure, sure. Um, it's the idea, that like, okay, you're unique in a broad. I'm sorry, you're unique in a specific sense. Oh god, god I'm trying to figure out the best way to phrase this. You're unique in a broad sense, but maybe not in a specific sense. Would you? Are that, are you trying to get at something? Maybe Neo, the one. Maybe not even just Neo, but just the one is unique in a manufactured sense. Yes, like the whole point is that we're being told Neo is not the one. That's the point, like, in the sense, like he is the one, but he's not going to resolve the conflict. Exactly, he's we're, there. He's there to reiterate the Matrix. Yes, absolutely. Exactly. Yes. So, but that, but the problem though is that we've spent the last four hours of Matrix runtime visually and verbally demonstrating this. Then we get one. Four second line of dialogue, which like who the hell is this asshole in the white suit? Why should we even <laughs> believe him? He's just some random guy that comes out of nowhere. He's he's not even built. Like I said, we, we haven't even talked about the fact that like we're not even told what's behind the door. We're never told who's the man behind the curtain. He's just some a-hole in a cha- sitting in a chair who tells us things that contradict everything that we've seen so far but isn't that the beauty that we are getting all this contradictory information that neo is not the one neo is not special neo is a glitch in the matrix you know to, i don't think he used that rob term, rob matt mass audience blockbuster but then he makes the no. choice to save trinity that's 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 the big impetus of the movie is that he chooses to save one instead of the many and the oracle is trying to play her cards to make sure that that leads to him saving the many but the, okay, I, I'm not arguing the message. I'm okay, arguing okay. how it's being laid out to the audience. It's being done in an overly convoluted fashion. Like I said, Rob, yeah, I'm not yeah. saying I'm not arguing whether this is objectively good or bad, as in like storytelling. I'm saying how it's being. I'm arguing the objectivity of how it's being communicated to the audience. And that's my thing. So when you have that moment at the end where he's able to do the force lightning, it's like, okay, like, like we, we've been told now for four hours that Neo has special abilities that transcend anybody. Yes, that's the first time we've ever seen it go outside of the Matrix. That's yes. fine. But we also saw him at the end of the first movie where we've been told, oh, if you die in the Matrix, you die in real life, where we see him go boop, boop. Yes. Yes. And like, so it's like, okay, like, so we know that his powers transcend the Matrix into re- into reality. Because both so of those like, moments revolve around Trinity. In the first that's movie, fine. That's he comes. Okay, I just wanted to make sure everybody's clear on that because it's he there. Is, he but- is brought back to life at the end of the first movie because Trinity pleads to him. He he is able to stop the Sentinels with a hand EMP that puts him in a coma and eventually gets him fucking blinded in the third movie because he's trying to pr- to protect Trinity. Like that's he, fine. He cares that's- so much about one but more than the that's many. Fine. That's fine, but the movie has to do a better job at conveying that to us. I, yeah, I Mass know what you mean. Audience, this isn't <laughs> under the silver lake. I want you to repeat that. This is not under the silver lake. This is Southland Tales, yes. <laughs> this is a movie that had a six-figure budget when that wasn't exactly commonplace. Oh, 
You're right. That's why I love it even more. Makes it so ambitious. Makes it so over the top. Makes it so wild. The ideas are ambitious. The conveying of the ideas is lackluster at best. I know. Okay, this is this is. There's a reason the why you said we disagreed about this in this episode. So fair. <laughs> like I said, I don't argue the the merits of the ideas. It's conveying them that is the problem. It's again, Rob loves good lord, oh god, dense dense media. Oh, I yeah. am never going to argue that. That's his <laughs> preference. That's his palate. But the problem, though, is that when, oh, good lord, James Joyce wrote, God, Finnegan's Wake, he wasn't writing it as, like, a dime store, like, bestseller novel. Uh, that that wasn't the intent. You're right. You're right there. I mean, he was writing it very much in uh, in anti-war movements. <laughs> exactly. He was not – it was not being designed for mass consumption. Yep. And, but the problem, though, is that The Matrix Reloaded was designed for mass consumption. You're fair – and you're correct in what you're saying, Zach. And you can disagree with me all you want, but no, like, but, no, the but that's movie, the thing. I don't think I disagree the with you. In the pudding. I think I disagree with you on like five layers deep. The first four layers, I'm totally with you, but I think we just feel different things about that about them. You like know, I said, but I think the proof is in the pudding in the fact that clearly mass audiences not just you, rejected yes. these two films, but they practically re- rejected the franchise. You're not wrong there at all. Absolutely, and I'm glad that we have you here, Zach, to just give it that you know, layer or orientation because I'm not going to think about it that way because I just fucking love this movie. <laughs> Rob is too busy jerking off to uh, the Arctic. I'm too busy thinking about how this movie portrays everything Tron tried to do infinitely better. <laughs> well, Tron's trying to be an, an adventure movie. Yes. It's not trying to be uh, intellectual. Absolutely, absolutely. So I know we, we're on the topic of the message of choice. Gotta bring it back. Dang. Bane. Well, before we get to Bane, because I know we got to get to there, because that's going to be our big connection to the next movie, basically. We also have to talk about a little bit more about the Merovingian speech, because I think this ties in directly to what I was saying, is that this movie is not just about the choice of humans. It's not about just the choice of humans regarding the Matrix. And, of course, you know, this series is about, the franchise, I should say, is about, do you choose to be in the Matrix or not, like with Cypher in the last movie? Um, Do you choose to fight against the machines? Do you choose ignorance over bliss? Do you choose as Neo to save humanity and restart the Matrix? Or do you choose the one you love? There's a lot of human choices. But I think, like I mentioned before, it's not only about that. It's about the choices that programs and machines make based on the parameters of their creation. And I know I talked about that with the architect, but I really want to tie this back into the Merovingian. Because if you ignore the whole him just cursing for no reason in French, you know, that type of thing... Everything else he talks about is cause and effect, which, to a computer program, is choice. If you write a basic, basic, basic computer program and you give it something that is like an if-then statement or an if-else statement, anything like that, they are making a choice, but they are making a choice dictated by what you have set as their parameters of existence. And I love the fact that the Matrix starts to divulge this or or expand on this even, in the sense that these programs, the Merovingian, the Twins, um, the Oracle, the Architect, all these big grand things, Smith almost even, they are from early, earlier iterations of the Matrix. Smith might not be from an earlier iteration, but from the first movie he clearly knows about the earlier iterations. Uh, he gives a whole speech about the Paradise Matrix to um, Morpheus in the first movie. I think that there is something so unique that no movie has ever done before that says 
is sentience achieved by complicated programming? And this is something we've talked about before, Zach. I think it last came up when we did AI. You know, we, we were able, I say we, but I really mean me, I was able to look past the fact that we were looking at Haley Joel Osment as a robot. We were looking at the fact that, no, nobody believes he's a human. Of course, you know, the flesh fair, we had some of that. But nobody in the watching the movie says, oh, maybe Haley Joel Osment's a real boy. Nobody ever thinks that. They always think that Haley Joel Osment's programming is so long and convoluted that it mimics sentience. And that's what the Matrix gets at. There's an example that I use all the goddamn time when I teach statistics. It has to come up. What is random? What is a truly random event? Because I can tell you, if you flip a coin, if you can actually pin down every force and everything that goes into you flipping that coin, how, how much force from your thumb, how much force from air resistance, the weight of the coin, the, the, the metrics on the sides of how much the coin weighs, the surface area. If you knew everything about that coin flip, you can predict it with 100% certainty. There's a great story that people from MIT, even before the card counting of the movie 21 happened, they invented an ankle computer that calculated the results of a roulette wheel 100% of the time accurately. So what is random? What is sentience almost becomes this new thing because humans are random. If you write a computer program that is 10 billion lines long, that is so complicated that nobody else can get a handle on it and can even edit it, can, can't even tell you why it works, is that sentience? Is that randomness? We don't know. We as humans do not know because if you invent a program that is so convoluted a human brain can't understand it, I'm going to bet you that a human brain will invent a program to understand that other program. And that's the fucking point of the Matrix, that the machines have gotten so out of control that they have written programs for themselves to create, to delete, to copy, to reinstate all of these things over these different iterations that you have programs like the Merovingian who is clearly coming across as a sentient being. But he's not. He is bound to the parameters of creation just as every other program is. But he has been around for so long and had so many edits done to him and had so many changes because of exile and not deletion, which is what we get the Oracle telling us, that this becomes the pure mimicry of sentience. And I love that idea. Are these programs alive? Are they living? Are they acting like humans? Because on a base level, I want to say no. No program will ever act like a human. But in terms of the Matrix, we're all in the computer world. When I answer these questions about computers and machines and programs, I'm in the real world. At least I think. I don't know if I'm in the Matrix or not. But I'm looking at it from a world that humans control. This question is fundamentally changed when you are in a world that the computers control. When the Merovingian, who is bound by parameters somebody set one day is more powerful than your humans? That is a totally different question. And I, I know I set this up last week. I want to talk more about this. But do you see what I'm saying, Zach, is that perspective, once again, to bring in the message of this movie, is what makes a robot intelligent or not. If we are in the land of the living, I'm going to bang that robot against the floor and reprogram it every fucking five minutes, you know? But in the land of the computers, you can't do that. That changes this philosophical debate of whether or not robots we own are property. How do you want to unpack that, Zach? 
Talk about flourishes, folks. They're solely Jesus there Christ. for the audience to stroke themselves. This into is the oblivion. thing that I don't know if Zach was ready for when he was like, "Let's do the Matrix movies." I was like, "Yes, you know." And I don't think Zach was ready for it. it's like, "Oh no, Rob's been talking Rob, Rob, about Rob, computers, computers or for something." Years. Like, aren't you a little dehydrated after all that? <laughs> I'm still good. I actually do have a Gatorade. <laughs> I finished my coffee before our mid bath. I bet you do have a Gatorade. Do you need some lotion? You're probably chafed from how much you're stroking it. Jesus, folks. If you ever wanted to know why the Wachowskis aren't self-aware that was literally a 10-minute diatribe of why um <laughs> to those of you who sat through all that i applaud you or maybe pity you i think i think what zach is trying to say is you know maybe i should have let rob get really drunk because then let me see what you've gone on this diatribe <laughs> as i see it no matter no matter which rob i get i lose um god that would have been way more convoluted if i was drunk i'll tell you that but uh please zach any thoughts on that notion <laughs> None whatsoever, Rob. I, I hope you okay. made your peace. Um, that's all I can say. No, that's I kind of. I know nobody. Like nobody arch- thinks about this like shit other than I do. I, I was. I was kind of loosely paying attention for the first like ten minutes, and then by the fact by the time you like presented two different doors, I was like, yeah, I'm just gonna <laughs> go to whoever. I'm gonna open the door that ends the world. Fair, fair. I this will come. Can up we more please next week, talk like about Bane? Okay, Zach. Yes, I got my choice themes out of the way. Let me do a real quick look. Okay, uh, yeah, Bane we have to talk about because Bane, of course, is the cliffhanger of this movie. And Bane is also a prominent figure, well, not prominent, but a notable figure in the Enter the Matrix video game. Like I mentioned already, when they're um, leaving the, the meeting at the beginning of Matrix Reloaded, Niobe and Ghost help a bunch of people escape, and Bane is one of them. In the movie and in the video game, we see Agent Smith assimilate Bane, and then Bane takes the phone out of the Matrix. Which is, I think, Zach, correct me if I'm wrong, the only notion we get that now Smith is out of the Matrix. Is that right? It's just him assimilating Bane and Bane picking up the exit phone, right? Yes. Okay, okay. So then throughout the rest of the movie, and it's also actually included in the cutscenes of the game, we get these scenes of Bane, he's like in a secluded area and he's cutting his hand, uh, you know, because Smith has never felt pain before. Uh, that's a big part of that first, the first movie's monologue. He's like, I think it's a smell, but I don't know what smell is. I don't know what pain is, that type of stuff. I, I'm, I'm misremembering, and maybe you can fill in the gaps here because we're talking about Bane now. Um, in the video game, there's a few cutscenes of Bane killing the rest of his crew members and delivering the EMP early. Because at the very end of The Matrix Reloaded, you know, when Neo and um, Trinity and Morpheus get picked up by the other ship, I believe the hammer... Um, you know, the captain says something like, we were t- really trying to work on our defense, because also in Enter the Matrix, there's this whole thing of that all the ships need to come back to Zion so they can form a perimeter around Zion, and when the when the Sentinels get too close, they were all going to activate EMPs simultaneously, like a big last wall of defense. But in the video game, and very slightly in the movie, we hear that one of the EMPs went off too early and basically fucked up the entire plan. The video game shows the cutscene of Bane killing his crew members and activating the EMP too early, and then, you know, crashing his ship to be rescued by the hammer later on. So that's that's the setup from Bane from the video games. But here's my question for you, Zach. Something that I really was kind of confused about in this viewing of just The Matrix Reloaded. Does the movie want us to know that that is Smith or not? I had a really tough time, because me knowing the lore, I know it's Smith. Smith has gotten, you know, agency in the real—excuse the pun. Actually, no, that's a good pun. Smith has gotten agency in the real world by assuming the life of Bane or the personality of Bane. 
Are we supposed to know that that is the case when that cliffhanger ending happens? What do you think? Because um, it, it, it's, okay. very, oh, it's very it's so very. You're asking whether they wanted the audience to be baffled during the uh, cliffhanger ending of their film. Well, baffled. This okay. This might actually. I might have. Maybe this will be something we answer next week. Because I'm really remembering when Bane starts to fuck shit up. You know, blind Neo and fight Neo and that type of stuff in the third movie. Are we supposed to know that when we pan over at the very end of Matrix Reloaded that that is Smith in that body? Or are we just supposed to think there's something bad going on with this dude? Because there's, we, I think, I think the, it's, the implication think it's is the that Wachowski's there's something rough. But not, what is that rough? That, I don't think it's the Wachowski's conveying it properly. I think, like I said, I think it's, it's, oh God, Rob, you're going to either love or hate this. Probably love it. Okay. It's the Rob, like, defragging the hard drive argument. You just assume the audience is as on top of it as you are. And, do, and, and you can't realize that not everyone's as steeped in this as you are. Well, I, I'm i glad you say that because I totally agree with you. But now I wanted to take it back to your experience because I believe at the start of this conversation you said you saw this movie in theaters. Yeah. Oh, I had no idea. I'm like, who the hell is okay. that? And then it's like to be concluded. Uh, that was like, one, okay. part of my, one part of my <laughs> question was what did you think? What was the audience feeling? How did How did the audience feel leaving The Matrix Reloaded after that? Uh, not because you said it earlier. You said something like the architect scene. I, I might be misremembering. You said it was a wet fart. I don't agree with that. This is a wet fart. The ending cliffhanger oh, of the Matrix Reloaded is of such a buzzkill. <laughs> oh, 100%. Like, no, like, it is probably in studio filmmaking, like, big budget studio filmmaking, arguably probably one of the top five worst film endings of all time yeah it is it is atrocious and i'm not i'm not arguing that at all is it the worst cliffhanger ending in a blockbuster knowing that we're going to get another one absolutely i feel like many people would say that the worst cliffhanger ending because they're stupid is inception but that's not a cliffhanger that is a finalization to the movie but you know zach that i have talked to many people throughout my lives where they go man i really liked inception but i would loved it better if it had a real ending and i went you're stupid you're stupid you're stupid you're stupid for thinking that the top spinning has anything to do with the fucking movie because it's not even his totem oh my god we'll get to that later but i want to know the theaters do you have any memory of the the collective feeling in the theater no No? i i could I I'm pretty sure I know what theater I went to for this. Unfortunately, there's no ticket stub to corroborate that statement. Ah, okay. um, yep. Um, Years no, before I, we knew each other, so yeah, yeah. <laughs> yes, this is at least uh, not the, oddly enough, only like what five years, four or five three, years, somewhere in there. Th- yeah. Three, three, three and a half years. Because I what I met you at the beginning of t- 2007, so three and a half. Four, okay, three and a half years. Um, no, I guess I have no memory. Um, I think I was. I think we were all pretty. I, I think the spectacle won, like, won me and my nephew over. Ah, gotcha. um, my mother was, I think, amused enough that, like, that, like, she easily went along for revolutions. I remember when it came to seeing revolutions in theaters, my nephew did not come along. It was just my mother and I. Um, and like I said, she did not like that movie. I I was not fond of that movie. Like I said, no, I, I think you, I guess I told you, my mother and I watched the first one in like September 2002 and she like, she was like, not that she was like, my mother never got into any entertainment like in a big way, <laughs> sure. but like she was, she was interested enough that she wanted to see more, like she wouldn't mind taking us to go see it. Uh, my mother was always the, the person that kind of got dragged to movies. No, like I said, it's, uh, I have no memory. I would imagine probably 
there was some level of I, I, I couldn't even tell you because this is before like you could just pull your phone out and like go to the Wikipedia article and go what uh, is who is ending Matrix Reloaded you know that type exactly of thing. Yeah. there's not a thousand articles from uh, entertainment websites five no, things I, you didn't notice about Bane in the Matrix Reloaded <laughs> exactly so I really like that's a fascinating question I wish I knew what happened okay, okay. Um, or not even happened remembered because that's Good God. Like, it probably – my mother might have picked up on that. That seems like something like if you're an adult watching this, probably didn't fly under your radar. Maybe my mother – if I had to guess, my assumption would be she probably told us. Like, probably me and, and my nephew were like, who was that? And she's like, oh, yeah, he was the one from, like, earlier in the film. We probably had no memory of it. Like, oh, okay. 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 That, that was – you actually lead me the to my next question. see through that. Sure, sure. And I think that that's exactly what my next question was going to be is because, you know – um, for the years that I've seen this movie, I, I remember the first time I actually saw the ending for The Matrix Reloaded, which would have been an HBO Max. Sorry, just HBO watch, you know, way back in the day. I was just like, well, I don't know who the fuck that is, but I know there's other movies. There's other, you know, video games. I got to look into it type of thing on this rewatch. Yes, it might be some of my bias knowing the Matrix lore so well, but I was really trying to put myself in the mindset of, can you get a sense of who Bane is just from the movie? And I think you kind of can. You get the scene where Smith assimilates him, he leaves the Matrix, he starts cutting himself... Um, you know, we get the whole thing about how the EMP went off too early at the very end and there was one survivor. So I think it's there. Is that me just filling in the gaps because of the lore I know? What did you think, Zach, on this rewatch? Did you did you get the, the uh, sufficient grounding for Bane at the end of the movie? Okay. Because uh, he, okay, he's, he's, in, he's in the whole rest of the movie, you know? The whole scene well, when they're I, like... Well, no, no. Like, well, okay, I knew what the... Okay, as somebody who's obviously experienced this film multiple times over the sure, last, like, sure. like, 18 years... Um, yeah, like, I knew what to look for. Like, every time Rachel, like, Rachel and I watch this, and every single time Bane was on screen, I'm like, pay attention to this. Mm. It will be incredibly important. Um, so you, you were coming from, like, some preconceived notion of what to oh, look yeah. for. To, oh, okay. Yeah. Well, yeah, I, well, Rob, I, like I said, like, I, I, I listened to the blank, I can remember the Matrix, like, as someone who started listening to Blank Check, like, in May of 2017, mm-hmm. and this was, like, one of the very first things I ever listened to them do, because, like, God, like, I think they were just barely into, like, Tim Burton in 2017. Or, no, maybe, yeah, 2017 was, like, Tim Burton for them. So, like, no, it's, like, I was aware of all this. Like, and and that's been kind of, I remember I bought, like, the Blu-rays and, like, that, like, a few months after that. So, like, no, like, I've definitely watched these movies twice now with all that just, like, oh, God, uh, analysis, like, filtering through okay okay yeah no i, I knew what to look for i, mean, I guess they're, they're... i would i guess what i'm saying is uh, i would love some i was asking you zach because you're here one and two you know you didn't rewatch the animatrix you didn't rewatch the cutscenes from the video game i guess i would really love to get some feedback if, if there's anybody in the audience who you know has has is not as steeped in these movies as we are i want to know is that reveal of bane as a cliffhanger for the second movie really that jarring yes it's some level of jarring because Bane is not in a lot of the movie. But I, I honestly think that if you are an astute watcher of The Matrix Reloaded, you're not going to be that blown away. Because we have the whole thing, like I said, Bane getting assimilated, Bane coming into the real world, Bane cutting himself, Bane 
blowing up his other teammates. We even get the scene when in Zion, the council is like, what two ships will go and watch out for the Nebuchadnezzar because we need this plan of attack as well. And it cuts to Bane going, us, 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 we should volunteer, we should volunteer. Like, it's there, but I, I, I know, Zach, you and I are coming from such long historied perspectives of these movies that we are not the best to judge if that's actually the case. So I would love to hear from somebody if, if this is really that egregious. Because from what I read from reviews, multiple, multiple people went, fuck this. Who the hell is Bane? Bane's not in the movie. He was never introduced. And I'm kind of like, no, he was. Maybe not sufficiently. But he's there, and if you have two brain cells, you can figure it out. But I, I don't know. That's, that's kind of the, the balance I'm leaning towards. Are we biased enough to make, make me think that way, or are audiences just stupid? <laughs> a little column A, a little column B. Fair, fair. I'd love to hear if anybody has any thoughts on Bane, because I thought it was perfectly set up in this last viewing. But I also did watch, you know, three hours of other material leading up to it. <laughs> Oh, so Bane. Anything else you want to say about Bane? I know we're going to talk about him in the next thing. What did you think about the scene when he drops uh, Littlefinger off the plane and says, for you, you know? <laughs> that was bad. That was bad. I, I, had no, I had no other way to work that in there, but I did. <laughs> You're silly. The fire arises. <laughs> it doesn't matter who we are. What matters is our plan. I was born into the Matrix, molded by it. <laughs> No, anything else you want to say about Bane? I mean, other than the cliffhanger, it's, he's going to come up a lot more next week, right? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. He was, uh, like I said, no, he's, yeah, he's, he's no, he's not going anywhere. Yes. Yes. I can't wait next week. We're going to talk about, you mentioned it before, how, um, the, the sunglasses are seen in Neo looking at Bane in Matrix Vision. And it's just like, wow, you know, Agent Smith, he's rocking those sunglasses in Code World or not. <laughs> Zach, I think I've, I've Is hit a questions. I've hit a lot of stuff. Is there any other moments you wanted to mention with The Matrix Reloaded? I think I hit all my themes. Um, I mean, you know, I, I guess maybe there's one more thing at the end just regarding the, the Oracle to set up for next week. But in terms of the specific movie, was there anything else you wanted to bring up? Any moments? Any uh, Anything like that? Any characters we didn't talk about? I think we did everybody. No, I think I, I'm happy okay. with everything I had to say. Um, we didn't we didn't mention Harry Lennox. He's going to show up more as uh, in the as Commander Locke in the Mar next movie. You mean Martian Manhunter. Yes, Martian Manhunter, of course. <laughs> Harry Lennox is a good actor. I really like him. So, uh, And I have seen the Martian Manhunter segment of Zack Snyder's Justice League. So, you know, I'm, I'm caught up, I guess. Um, uh, I think then, if there's nothing left, I want to end this by saying at the very end of Enter the Matrix, the video game, uh, depending on who you're playing as, of course, Niobe or Ghost... Uh, you get a message from the mate uh, from the Oracle, sorry, and they go to see the Oracle, and this is the first appearance in chronological Matrix of the Oracle not being Gloria Foster, as we said. Mary Alice is the one who replaces her, and in at at the end of Enter the Matrix, she actually explains the Oracle explains about the deal she made with the the father of Sati to give her shell codes to him so he could trade those shell codes for the life of Sati, and that ends up with her shells being deleted, and she looks different. I kind of love that idea. I know we mentioned it earlier. Did they write themselves into a corner or not? Who knows? We'll talk about that more next week, but I love the idea that the Merovingian is tightly related to why the, the Oracle looks different, and I cannot wait till we get to start the Matrix Revolutions next week, Zach, where the Merovingian says, bring me the eyes of the Oracle. <laughs> 
I think that was it. I think I've covered all this stuff. Uh, next week, when we do Matrix Revolutions, I will finish up the Animatrix. Uh, there's no more video games to do until after the movie, when I'm going to talk about the Path of Neo, and I'm going to talk about the MMO, and we will leave the Matrix until we get to the fourth movie. Zach, before our questions, any final thoughts on Matrix Reloaded? Nope. Okay. Well, for our questions... Uh, I don't have a lot for snacks. This was a movie that, like I said at the start, I just fell in love with and I love watching it type of thing. But I could answer Cinemodities in Late Night because they have the same answer. Hell yes! Oh my god, this is a Cinemodity. This is so ambitious. This is so off the wall. This is so ahead of its time, I even want to say, with what the Wachowskis are trying to do, with how compelling I find it. This is the oddest thing I think we've watched in a while, especially after the fucking Spider-Man series, where I think I said no to everything in there. Late Night? Hell yes. I think I actually want to use the precedent I established last week that this is a movie that I will put on in a late night viewing and whoever I'm with they can do whatever the fuck they want as long as they're being quiet because I want to watch this movie so I'm going hell yes to both Zach what do you think about Cinemodities in Late Night uh yeah yes to both it works just a yes not a hell but, yes <laughs> no not a hell yes I think, it's, I think it's yes if somebody I think kind of bending the Cinemodities late night rule of like oh someone cannot have watched this mm. I think considering this film needs to be reappraised it has to be someone who's not seen this in a while uh, Yeah. oh yes yes we always talk about that yeah absolutely I love that you use the phrase bending the Cinemodities and late night rules uh, because uh, I, I think I just have to say you know it's really going to bake your noodle if you realize there are no rules on this podcast. <laughs> there are no rules. <laughs> I figured those questions would be easy. That's going to bring us to snacks. Like I said, I don't have too many, but I have one. We ha- we have one. Zach, you and I should be the twins right now. We have a snack. Orgasm cake. Right? No, I just realized we didn't even talk about the highway sequence at all. Well, okay, we kind of glossed over it because you were like, it's a lot of action. I'm like, yeah, I love it. It's a lot of action, but it really is like fucking 15 minutes of unbroken action type of thing. Like, it is sure. aggressive. But I love it. And and also, I thank you for reminding me, Zach, in the Enter the Matrix video game, it explains why Niobe and Ghost are there to catch Morpheus when he falls off the tractor trailer. <laughs> it's a good scene, though. It's a good scene. I mean, Morpheus, Lawrence Fishburne with a samurai sword, like, fucking shit up. When he, uh... When he scrapes the tire of the twins' uh, SUV and it flips over and he shoots the gas tank, dude, that's awesome. That's dope as hell. I love that stuff. The dope whole as hell. The whole explosion of the two uh, uh, trucks jamming into each other and Neo rescuing Morpheus and the Keymaker, dude, give me that all day. But maybe there's a good reason that we didn't get into that too much because I have the Keymaker on my list of snacks as well. So before we get there, orgasm cake, Zach. <laughs> We've talked about it before many times, but we're actually getting to the moment of it. Let's brainstorm this. Is it just going to be a cake that gives people orgasms? Or are we, are we going to play with it a little bit more? Oh, God. Do we I'm need go to play with it a little bit more? <laughs> I think orgasm cake just kind of sells it. Yeah, it, it does. So I guess let's, let's answer some questions for the, uh, for the menu. Will it work on both men and women? Uh, sure. We don't want to be unbiased at the Cinemati's restaurant. Okay, I'm with you. We want to be all-inclusive. We want men and women to have an orgasm from eating our chocolate cake. Women Everybody. in this movie, the woman in this movie, it, it's, it showed off pretty nicely. You know, she just, she gets flushed. She gets, you know, she gets uh, this sense of horniness and has an orgasm. And the Merovingian goes and makes her suck his dick in the bathroom from what we're implied to believe. Now, 
here's the thing, Zach. Here's my question. I'm with you. I want it to work on, on men as well. What's the timeline for that? Are we talking like, you know, bite a cake and in the next in 15 cake. seconds? Just in my pants. Just in my pants. Well, well yes, you're not wrong there. But the, the erection has to be achieved prior to the jizzing in the pants. I don't no. think it's possible for no. a human male to ejaculate no. from a no. placid state. No. That's how it, that's how powerful it is. Oh, you're going, you're going orgasm cake for men is ejaculation from flaccid state. Are you really saying yes. that, Zach? Yes. Shit. You just upended <laughs> my worldview. I was, I was literally not ready for this. If we can do this, oh my God. We, th- this is not just a cake in our restaurant. This is a form of biological warfare. Like, that is aggressive, Zach. <laughs> I'm okay with it, though. So, <laughs> would it be chocolate? That's my next question. Is it only going to be chocolate, or would we have different flavors? Oh, God. Because I can't imagine the flavoring has anything to do with the... Eggnog flavored. Orgasmic qualities. Eggnog flavored. Okay. I, guess, I don't know why you said eggnog, but okay. Because <laughs> we're in December, I guess, maybe. Where did eggnog come from? <laughs> Sounded right. <laughs> I like that. Zach says it sounded right. Orgasm cake. Absolutely. I only had one more. And like I mentioned, um, I want our own version of the key maker to help us get around the restaurant quickly. I love, 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 love. I cannot stress enough. The idea that a key being put into a door can change where that door leads. That is such a fucking cool sci-fi concept to me. Of course, in the real world, you open a door, it's always going to lead the same place. But imagine if you could put a key in it and turn that key, and the key's creation would change where that door leads. That is so fucking cool to me. And let's dive on this and say, hey, we need a key maker to make us keys so we can get around our restaurant quickly and efficiently. What do you think? Sure. Oh, God, you can't beat that. No. A good lock. Forget about the key maker, just having a good locksmith. <laughs> if a locksmith can create, you know, the different ways to get through these places, I would love it. Maybe, now that you say it that way, Zach, John Ratzenberger should be our key maker. He seems to have a good layout of the restaurant, right? Fair. Okay. Fair. Okay. Can I also say that it is kind of a bummer that the key maker dies? I'm I'm always kind of upset that the key maker gets shot to shit by Agent Smith at the end of the movie, you know? Yeah, Agent Smiths. Smiths, yes. The best thing about me is that there's more than one of me. (laughs) Honestly, Zach, those are my two snacks. I was really zoning into the themes and and this movie. So please, Zach, enlighten us. What do you got for the restaurant? All right, okay. Orgasm cake. Yes, not flavored. Let's talk about it again. Let's. How about this? Let's just. I'll just copy everything we said and repeat it because that's how important orgasm cake is to us as a restaurant. Which you're not disagreeing with, right? Oh no, not at all. Orgasm cake is foundational to the Cinemodities restaurant. Absolutely. I might eat some of it. I've not, I don't know what it feels like to ejaculate from a flaccid state. It's a, it's it's like a <laughs> prostate example or a prostate stimulation like thingy. I'm just. I'm realizing now that at the start of our last week's episode, I said something like, did we ruin this episode? We're talking about people fucking each other's moms on Xbox. Now we're ending this one with me going, I've never ejaculated from a flaccid state. (laughs) Is this, are we done? Is the Matrix trilogy the end of our series, you know? (laughs) The end of the podcast. Oh, okay, okay. Orgasm cake. Yes, thank you, Zach. What else we got? (laughs) I need, I need some good restaurant stuff. I feel lacking this week. Rob, like, how do you top orgasm cake? Okay, thank you. That's kind of what I was saying. The only way, the only other thing I came up with is a key maker, and that's not a food. That's us helping 
to get to the orgasm cake, if anything. <laughs> is there anything? Is there any? Like, like, should we have like? Oh God! Like, should we have like a nightclub where you're only allowed to wear like like very thin tank tops? Mm, I don't know. That might be promoting too much um, promiscuity in our restaurant. I know, you know? we wouldn't want that on top of uh, like I'm, I'm uh, thinking... ejaculatory cake. Yes, I'm thinking that if like a group of people who were trapped in the restaurant, they like got. You know, they got caught in an area and they started to have like this rave that, you know, the humans do. We would shut that down as fast as possible. Like I'm thinking, you know, their version of Morpheus would get up and go, you know, we will remember. We will make noise to make sure the Cinemodities restaurant knows we're here. We're going to come in with our drones so fast and take those people out, right? <laughs> oh, yeah. But yeah, okay, I think... Th- How about this? Yeah, How about we it. have a day at the restaurant where like everybody leaves like the baked goods... Like, outside of, like, Neo's, like, submarine apartment. We should have that at the restaurant where, like, all of our guests bring us food. But it's like a potluck just for you and I. Uh, Just real quick, did you say submarine apartment? What do you mean? Did you see these apartment doors they have? Like, it's like a submarine, like, level hatch. Okay, that's true. I never thought about it that way, but you're right. But, okay, (laughs) that's weird. I I, I literally never thought about it that way. They look like blast blast doors, which are submarine doors, technically. Yes. Okay. Thank you for uh, affirming my point. Yeah, I never. Th- I, I just. I thought they were always. They always look like bomb shelters to me, not submarine doors. But but I'm saying you're right. They they look very similar. Those two things. But all the same. I think we should make a potluck where like people bring us food. Okay. Okay. Like leave it outside of our office type yes, of thing. Yes. On the ground. <laughs> Has to be on be, the ground. Would it be food that they have to order from the restaurant and then leave no, at our door? No. No. Oh, it's food they bring in. Yes. Are, are we okay with that? Outside food and drink? It doesn't. It doesn't. <laughs> just for this day, you're saying? Just for this yeah. event? <laughs> because I, I'm pretty sure, like, two years ago, we said, I, I'm pretty sure I offhandedly said, like, if somebody brings their own restu- uh, water bottle into the restaurant, we execute them. I'm fairly certain I said something like that. So I don't know if I can go back on outside food or drink, unless it's specifically for us. There you go. You have you have your out. Bro. Okay, okay. That's that's that. Well, that's fair. Okay, we might need to reiterate some of this in next week's with the outside food or drink. I'm a little hesitant, but okay. Were there any other snacks that you had, Zach? Nope. Orgasm cake. Very light on the snacks in terms of this movie, right? Pretty much. Yeah, yeah. There's a lot more going on this candy. Snacks. There's candy, but that's kind of like <laughs> that. Yeah, that doesn't count because it's like you know. Neo, would you like a piece of candy? Should I take it or should I not take it? Are you trying to mess with my emotions? And the oracle goes, I like candy. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, well, with all that being said, Zach, we did it. We're two out of three Matrix movies deep. We got one more to go. We're going to finish up the Matrix until, of course, the um, the new one comes out, which we will be seeing in theaters. I know I'm going to be checking that on theaters. I'm sure you are as well, Zach. And then, I, of course, will record it from HBO Max. Because uh, it's on both, right? Right? It's coming on both? Yes. Okay, perfect. It's the last major release for HBO Max. Ah, gotcha. Gotcha. Okay, well, as always, if you like what you heard, please harass us through email, cinemodities at gmail.com. Chime in on any of the questions Zach and I have posed to you about our disagreements on this movie. I cannot remember them all. Also, if you like what you heard, check out the Cinemodities Patreon you can get way, way more bonus episodes while also supporting the podcast. It's good fun. Ben and I talk about nonsense over there. Other than that, I mean, there's the Cinemati subreddit. 
please check that out to join uh, join that for more information about the show. And I think then, Zach, of course, there's no reason saying what we're going to do next week. Uh, it's going to be the third Matrix movie, but we have to talk about how we're going to end this one. And I figured what better way, let's do that ending credits song in reverse. And this time for Matrix Reloaded, it is Rage Against the Machines, Calm Like a Bomb. Any uh, any dissenting opinion on that? Or you're fine with, uh, with that? I am fine with okay. it. Any final thoughts then, Zach, from you about The Matrix, this series, Cinemodities? Um, is there any reason people shouldn't check out the Patreon? No, don't, don't, don't tell anybody that. <laughs> All I can say is to be concluded. To be concluded. And, Zach, I'm also sorry we've gone very long, and it doesn't look like you're going to be able to catch Last Night in Soho tonight. I'm sorry. <laughs> yes, unfortunately, the movie began 20 minutes ago, and it's a 45-minute drive. So whenever you do see it, Zach, we'll talk about it, uh, and uh, we'll take it from there. Oh, yes, I saw 